Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the Critically Acclaimed Podcast. It's a podcast where we talk about movies, and we also have a sound effect at the beginning. Well done. You're welcome. You're good, good editing there. I do all the damn work around here. <laughs> Thank you so much. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. I contribute to Slash Film. With me, as always, is my far more intelligent co-host, Lies. William. Introduce yourself. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic for The Rap. I also write for Slash Film. Everybody calls me Bibbs, and I am nothing before Whitney Seibold. He is the smart one, oh not I. I'm just going to go over here and hit myself on the head with the mallet a few times in a very daffy duckish fashion. <laughs> Will it make funny noises? Yes. Uh, um, this week on Critically Acclaimed. I'm not sure if I'm the smarter one. I'm just the curmudgeon. No. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the snot. When I grew up, when I was growing up, that meant you were the smart one. But anyway, oh. my, <laughs> my, my, I did my name already. Yes. What are we reviewing this week? I don't know. You okay. know, there's a new Indiana Jones movie. We're we reviewing Indiana Jones yeah. and the Dial of Destiny. Which, We're... more than once, I've typed out, completely by accident, Indiana Jones and the Daily Density. <laughs> Okay, that sounds like a cool college band. Uh, we're also reviewing the new indie film uh, Past Lives, which recently uh, went wide. The other new indie film. Oh, you said it. I did. I did. You, you're, you're the one who made it happen, but I love you for it. Uh, the new animated film Nimona and whatever the hell Mad Heidi is. I look the, forward to you explaining that later. They're calling it Swiss exploitation, and I'll nice. get to that. Yeah. So glad we have that now. Uh, but the big release, the big release this week... Uh, is a film that, uh, you know, we, we we were told would not be made. Mm. In the 1980s, there were a trilogy of films uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, produced by George Lucas, starring Harrison well, Ford. there were three of them. There were... Th- I think that counts. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to steer away from that, that concerned word, trilogy. I don't care. It's an accurate word. There were three mm. of them. Who cares? I... Um, Steven Spielberg famously wanted directed to direct a James Bond film. The Broccoli said, no, thank you. So he worked with uh, George Lucas to find kind of like a perfect combination of the two where he wanted to make like this big stunt spectacular and George Lucas wanted to make an homage to yet another type of pulp. Uh, well, he had he already had, done... He had a hit with a, a film called Star Wars in, yes. uh, a few years prior. That was the sci-fi kind of pulp and he wanted to do the old-fashioned uh, sort of um, Alan Quarter main explorer kind of international tomb raiding kind of character which which were also pretty big in the 30s you look at some of those old republic serials you see a lot of those sorts of things uh but and the and the character they created was indiana jones and uh raiders of the lost ark the very first film that they created with the character is considered something of a classic and it is a rollicking adventure it does a lot of things that uh, kind of helped push action movies forward. A lot of fascinating mm. uh, use of sound design and uh, innovative stunt work and visual yeah, effects. The, um, uh, the punch sound effects mm-hmm. in Indiana Jones, which they used in the first four of these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, classic Hollywood meat slammers, like oh, a, yeah. a big kind of a noise. Larger than life. Like mm. it, It's like when... We can make it sound like how it actually sounds when you punch a guy, which is something to the effect of this, which is fine, Mm. but it's larger than life. It's a movie. We want to make it sound like he just had like a rocket in his fist (laughs) and he hit a guy so hard it like whammed him. Yeah. Bless him for it. So everything was big. Everything was wonderful. The Batman sound effects, but you just hear it this time. Uh Raiders of the Lost Ark is often considered one of, mm-hmm. if not the greatest action movies of all time. Yeah. 
A little hard to dispute. I've, I've, I have seen it. Mm-hmm. It's an excellent motion picture for the most part. There's a few things in it that kind of rankle me. Uh, th- things wrinkle you? Yeah. They, you know, every once in a while. <laughs> Normally on this podcast, <laughs> I, I don't criticize anything. What I appreciate, though, is that um, you look at Star Wars, and yeah. Star Wars deals in sort of like broad archetypes. It's, yeah. it's uh, shallow by design. That that's kind of, it was meant to resemble and even feel like those old serials, which weren't terribly deep. There's I, not not a lot of I would say shallow is maybe a little harsh. I would say um, uh, simple, perhaps. Yeah, just, uh, straightforward. straightforward. Let's say straightforward. All okay, right. uncomplicated. Yeah, uh, yeah. Good, good guys, good guys, bad, bad guys look like Nazis, and we blow them up. That's that's the message. Kind of, that's, um, yeah, more or less. What I appreciate about Raiders of the Lost Ark is uh, Steven Spielberg, a Jewish filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, the magical MacGuffin in that first movie was the Ark of the Covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is an actual artifact mm-hmm. from biblical lore that uh, protected uh, Jewish tribes in ancient times. It was mm-hmm. filled with the power of God. Yeah. The, and the, the and covenant the, with God of the Jewish yeah. people. And the plot and then, of the movie is that the Nazis, of all uh, fucking people, wanted to steal it and use it as a weapon. Mm. By the way, that loud banging noise you may oh, have just heard, we're, we're recording this on 4th of July weekend, that might happen. Yeah, we're going to hear some banging noises. So uh, having a hero who pretty much almost exclusively beats up Nazis and well, he, a movie that is, it, uh, yeah, a movie that concludes with Nazis having their faces melted off by mm. God, mm. it's a political film if you think about it. A, a, a bit, a bit, yeah. a bit. Uh, and in, in this, Indiana Jones is sort of the, the observer, the conscientious objector. When yeah. it's time to open the vessel of God, he closes his eyes at the end of that movie. Yeah. It's like, don't look at it and you will not feel God's wrath. Yeah. Uh, he is not one of God's chosen. And he acknowledges that. And uh, mm. so he lets sort of like the magic take out the evil and just hides it in a, a warehouse somewhere, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, he doesn't let them. He's okay. unhappy about that, actually. But it, that's that's the that's the sort of the bittersweet ending. Yeah. You know, like after all of that, it's just going to be shoved into a closet and no one will ever see it again. Mm. Um, I so much love about and, that movie. And uh, and it and, was it was yeah. several chapters of the serial kind of at once. It was like mm-hmm. a whole serial condensed into a single feature film. If they were going to do it again, which they did a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate that the next one took place before the first one. It was a, mm-hmm. a, technically a prequel. Yeah. You don't need to know that. In fact, for years I actually didn't realize that. But mm. once I knew that, it made a lot of sense. Because the Indiana Jones we meet in Temple of the uh, in the Temple of Doom, the second mm. uh, film. Uh, I rewatched recently. Bad movie. Not it, There's Not stuff good. There's it's, great it's stuff like in really it. It's like really badly structured film. There's great stuff there's, in it. And but there's also a lot of racist stuff in it. Um, here's, here's... I want to get to that. Right. Uh, real, real... <laughs> I was trying to make a point about Temple of Doom, and he just interrupted me. Sorry. There was the whole thing about the, the prequel. It takes the... place. Before oh, because the pre- that, the, yeah. the idea of it is uh, Temple of Doom takes place a few years prior, and in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones is a character with dignity. He believes things belong in museums, and mm. in Temple of Doom, when we meet him, he's, he's a little more reckless. He's more of a black murder. market smuggler, and he, he murders mm-hmm. the most number of people in that film. Yeah. I think he kills like. 23 people like he kills a lot of people I always look at Temple of Doom as the film well not always once I realize that I look at Temple of Doom as um, the film in which Indiana Jones grew up Mm. and to into the kind of person who would become the Nazi punching hero that would be in the later films Uh, as a result I'm okay with it being uh, uh, I'm okay with it being darker I'm okay with Mm. it being 
uh, a bit more uh, sort of boys' adventure, lots yeah, of like yeah. scary bugs and gross stuff, and I can I can handle all of that. Bo- but both it, both Spielberg and George Lucas were mm. getting divorced at the time, it's a di- so uh, it's a the, divorce. They, they kind of channeled a lot of their their negative emotions into that movie. So Indiana mm-hmm. Jones is brainwashed by like mm-hmm. black blood that he's force fed, and then he's uh, like, and like, then he's like starts to like hurt his own kid, like his kid's sidekick. Uh, yeah, the, there's, the there's main a, a woman scene of a child being whipped. There's just a lot yeah. of a lot of dark stuff. The, in the there, woman right? protagonist in that film is Kate Capshaw. Uh, yeah. yeah, Kate Capshaw is not helpful at all. Mm. She's actually very loud and shrill, and I think she's doing a funny job of it. But compared to Marion Ravenwood from but the like first Karen movie, Allen, who is yeah. very capable, action oriented, could you know drink a guy under the table, uh, Willie from Temple of Doom, less so. Mm. I, uh, I think. We're, I think we're, it, weirdly enough. Steven Spielberg would marry her a couple of years later. Like they met on the set of this movie and, and they're still married to this day. Good for them. Whatever yeah. works. Um, I think Temple of Doom would be a very interesting double feature with True Lies because those are mm. both divorce movies where the guys <laughs> who make huge blockbuster movies were going through a divorce. And when you watch the movies now, you see this weird undercurrent of anger often directed towards women, mm. but also towards non-white people. Like, <laughs> it's pretty messed up. But there is... There's stuff I like in Temple of Doom, but you have to wade through some crap to get to it. Yeah. The set pieces are phenomenal. The minecart chase is amazing. I love the opening musical number and like giant oh. dance hall riot. I think all of that stuff is really wonderful. Uh, but yeah, the fundamental premise is based on racism. The the characters are all over the place. Yeah, it's, it, it's it's one of those movies you have to put an asterisk next to yeah, because the, uh, if you if you're you can enjoy it, but you also have to admit that's kind of gross, isn't it? Yeah. The uh, and the first film had the Ark of the Covenant as mm. sort of this this uh, mm. the the MacGuffin that everybody's going after. Yeah, the, the artifact that turns out to be really yeah. magical. Yeah. But it's it, they're talking a lot about it in that movie. Like, mm. don't touch the ark. It has it has reverence. Yeah. There's there's, yeah. there's and and it actually is mm. a, a spiritual object, and it has some sort of mi- like mystical uh, religious qualities to mm. it. The artifact in this movie isn't really mentioned too much. No, it's, it's the like, Shankara stones. Yeah, the Shankara stones. They don't talk about them a lot. They're not. Just they're they're, not, taken they're and, not idolized. They're not given the same amount of respect. Yeah. It's it's not the and, same. You know, it, I I suppose it it's and it belongs to the small village. It's not like some mm-hmm. mystical Hindu object that you know is well known to history. Well, it's not. Uh, it's not like in like a giant palace, like mm-hmm. full of like whatever. It's. It's just treated differently. It's yeah. treated, I think, with a little less uh, reverence, yeah, and, and I think that's I think that's very telling. And then yeah. uh, that was in '84. Yeah. Uh, it was so it was rated PG. It's still rated PG. It was so violent. It yeah. rather famously that gets his uh, heart ripped out in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, like they pull it out of his chest without any blood though. So it's, it's like still magic. grotesque. Yeah, like it's it's. Uh, I've heard it said. I'm not the... entirely sure this is strictly true. That uh, that uh, Temple of Doom is actually technically just in terms of the actual gore we see on screen more violent than the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, you know what? Sure. It's arguably arguably. It's certainly it's certainly more mean spirited Texas Chainsaw, but there's yeah. not a scene of like. A woman going insane while an elderly cannibal drinks her blood. You know that's there, Willie goes insane while a guy eats monkey brains. That's true, but the, so, mon- uh, the monkey's long been dead. You know it's, it's not still considered gross. It's still living monkey. 
<laughs> Point is, I've seen Cannibal Holocaust. Um, yeah, fair enough. Uh, uh, the next so film yeah, in the series... Five, five years later, 1989, yeah. they came out with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which was kind of a knockoff of Raiders. Uh, they went back to a lot of the safe stuff. Yeah, well, uh, there was... Indiana Jones is, is fighting Nazis again. It's back in the 40s. The, uh, uh, the idea originally was to try to do something different. They had floated mm-hmm. the idea of Indiana Jones in a haunted house, and I would have loved to have seen that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Also a, Invasion of the Saucer Men. There was going to be a science mm-hmm. fiction. George Lucas had a lot of uh, yeah, ideas. a lot of big ideas. A lot of there. Are, if you look at the history of Indiana Jones, there's a ton of rejected ideas for sequels. M Night Shyamalan wrote a script once for it, uh, but um, they ended up doing a similar thing to the first one because it's about a, uh, a Judeo Christian artifact. In this mm-hmm. case, the uh, Holy Grail. Um, but the the wrinkle that they added, and I think this is the thing that makes that movie kind of special is that it actually became about a different core relationship. It's not about Indiana Jones and a love interest. It was about Indiana Jones and his dad. Mm. Now, Spielberg has long had a history of making movies about fathers, often absentee fathers. Mm. uh, And I think that actually kind of gives this film like a wonderful grounding, like an emotional Mm. earnestness that none of the other films in the series have. And... I remember seeing The Last Crusade. The Last Crusade was the first one that I saw in theaters. I'd seen them right. on TV, but I saw it in theaters. And I will. it's one of the film experiences I will never forget as long as I live because I, I was like seven years old when it came out. <laughs> I was visiting my grandparents in Connecticut, and my dad, I was able to convince my dad to like go to a movie. We sit in the theater, and the opening, and it's a wonderful opening. River Phoenix plays a young Indiana Jones, and over the course of one incredible, like, elaborate adventure, every bit of the Indiana Jones iconography comes together over the course of an hour, and it's hilarious. Around the time that River Phoenix, like, who at the beginning of the movie is, like, mm-hmm. not afraid of snakes, and then falls into a pit of snakes and goes, ah, now he's yeah. phobic of snakes. Um, around that time, I realized I had to go to the bathroom. Okay. I refused to miss a second of that movie. You pee in a bucket? No, I didn't pee in a bucket. Give me some credit. All right? Sorry, I a hel- cop. I held... No, 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 no. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't pee in the theater. All right. I held it painfully the entire time. I was squirming in my seat in utter pain as he was going through all of like the various trials at the end to mm. get to the grail. And I barely made it to the bathroom and I will never forget the finally <laughs> being being free of that incredible discomfort. But I was proud of myself because I didn't miss a goddamn second of that awesome movie. All right. And I, to this day, I, it took me a while because a lot of people have told me over the years... Uh, the Last Crusade isn't the good one. They repeat some of the action beats in the original. It's a little bit more jokey. You're not wrong. Uh, I still think it's the best one. All right. I think top to bottom, the story is the best. Uh-huh. I think it's the most. It's the, it's the story I get the most out of. I think all the action is great. If the tank chase is a little reminiscent of the truck chase, I don't care. <laughs> I think it's fine. I love the various trials at the end. I think they're really imaginative and very excitingly a, photographed. Scene where Indiana Jones kills three Nazis with one bullet. <laughs> it just fires a gun and penetrates three. It's really three great. Like Nazi it's, bodies. It's a fun film. Sean Connery's really fun yeah, in it. Like I, I love some, that movie. Somebody pointed out this detail to me recently but the yeah. bad guy at the end of the film gets a drop on indiana jones and his father who's played by sean connery yeah and the gun he's holding happens to be a walther ppk which was james bond's yep. gun and the actor who plays the villain was a james bond villain 
Oh, so, fuck. So, so James, James Bond, Bond villain. villain is shooting James Bond, Sean Connery, That's with hilarious. a Walther PPK. I don't know if I ever put that uh, together. I, I That's think funny. And that was clearly a joke that Spielberg would have thrown in there. That's a very funny um, joke. No. Uh, uh, but... Uh, I, I love Last Crusade as well. I, uh, of These were movies I watched a lot. We had them on VHS. I've sure. seen all three of them, uh, those first three anyway, a, a mm. bunch of times. Um, even the one I don't like, which is Temple of Doom. Sure. Uh, just legit bad movie. Uh, Last Crusade might... I guess Last Crusade and Raiders are both movies I enjoy immensely. Yeah. There is something, like, looking back on it, a little bit upsetting that we had to sort of keep going back to the same uh, the same version of Indiana Jones. Mm. Um, Indiana well, you, Jones... Which, 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 what do you mean? That is, like, the character played by Harrison Ford, who is aging and has to go on, like, a series of adventures. It's like, rather than be done with the serial, wouldn't it be nice if we had another Indiana Jones uh, adventure take, that took place with a new actor? Uh, yeah, there's with, this... a, with a new a new sort of tone, a completely mm-hmm. uh, that's and that was sort of the attempt with Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. It's uh, very different from yeah, something like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Not just darker, just the entire uh, tone, the setting, the pacing. It, it, it's a, a different musical animal. number for God's yeah, sake. It's a different yeah. animal. And uh, yeah. when we go back to Last Crusade, this was it was the way to sort of shut the book. It's like okay, we're gonna do it one more time. We're gonna do something really similar. We're going to give you kind of Raiders again, and then we'll be done with it. And the last yeah. shot of the movie is the characters right, literally riding off into the sunset on horseback. That's nice. Uh, and it's nice. Very and the, satisfying. And the horizon's right in the middle. <laughs> uh, nice. <laughs> it is. Look, look, look yeah, that shot. That's hilarious. The, uh, uh, the, the, and and the, you know what? It's a satisfying conclusion, and it seemed like that was the end of it. Everyone wanted mm-hmm. to move on. And then in the late 2000s, yeah, 2008. After, and again, they've been talking about it and like kind of working on development. Like if the timing ever worked out right and Spielberg was available and Harrison Ford was available and interested, we they it's like they wanted to have a script ready mm. for that moment. And that moment never came until Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Mm. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is a film that I have... My opinion of this movie changed slightly after seeing Dial of Destiny. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to argue that it is a very bad film for the most part. I I agree with that. I think it is, I think it is, uh, uh, shoddily constructed. I think if you thought the last crusade was too jokey by God, Mm -hmm. King with crystal skull, um, I think it's unnecessarily like weirdly overly complicated has like this sprawling cast and like characters we don't even use Mm. half the time. Remember John Hurt's in that movie? John Hurt's in that movie. (laughs) Ray (laughs) Winstone's in that movie. Why? I don't even remember. He's he's not that important in it. He betrays people a bunch. All the time. Why Why do we need him? What's the point? Like, I I like Kate Blanchett in that movie. I think she's a fun villain. Uh, I'm okay with the... Some people balked at the idea of, like, Indiana Jones, and there's aliens, but it's exclusively supernatural. And I'm like... I am willing to believe any pulp nonsense well, okay. in Indiana Jones movie. Remember, Come on. Remember what I said about the Ark of the Covenant, how mm-hmm. it's sort of a mystical religious artifact that actually has mm-hmm. some kind of like real world historical significance? Yeah. Same with the Holy Grail. That's mm-hmm. a, a Christian artifact. And the Shankara Stones as well. It's a different the culture. Shankara yeah. Stones, not treated quite the same, but yeah, yeah. it's also, also it's, a mystical artifact. Yeah. The point is, these things, these are more than just MacGuffins. These yeah. are things that actually are lending 
uh, not just an air of mysticism and an air of spirituality, these movies, right. but actually connecting it to the real world. Yeah. Uh, and using essentially the power of God to quelch evil in the world. Right. Uh, these are very religious movies. Mm. So you're saying that the aliens kind of dudify that. The, the aliens are not that. The True. aliens are... are uh, and the crystal skull, there actually are real-life crystal skulls based on the religion and the mysticism of uh, certain tribes that lived in the Amazon. Mm. And you can look up pictures of them uh, or, or listen to Dan Aykroyd go on some kind of weird rant about <laughs> crystal skulls. He, he named his vodka brand Crystal Skull Vodka after... Mm. Or is it Crystal Head? I forgot. Actually, I actually don't know. Crystal, I've, I've had some of it. It's quite smooth. Um, okay. Not a big vodka drinker, but I've had some... Because they, they sold little uh, airport bottles of ah, Crystal Skull. Okay. So there actually are Crystal Skulls, but it's not about those Crystal Skulls. No. It's about the alien head and Area 51. It's about the Russians because mm. Harrison Ford was in his 60s yeah. and they had to change the time setting. Yeah, so they changed it to after World War II and indeed the 1950s. Mm. The villains Here's, became the Russians. So, yeah. again... Get a new actor. I know. Set it in the past again. I will say, listen, I'm going to say this right now. I My point wasn't uh-huh. that Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull handled the story well. It, it didn't. My point is, I don't think aliens were fundamentally the worst thing because hmm. you could have played it as though the Area 51 alien conspiracy theory, whatever, is sort of the contemporary 20th century kind of faith. Yeah. You could have played that off in an interesting way. They, they I mean, didn't that would have been that. nice. They, if, yeah. they didn't do that, but I do think the material was fair game. I thought they handled mm. it poorly. Yeah. Uh, they introduced Indiana Jones' son, Mutt, played by Shia LaBeouf. Not the worst idea in the world. No, I actually like the character fine. It's um, fine. It's the, the I, action, it's, yeah. It's a pity that they just had to, like, dust off Harrison Ford and Karen Allen and it's like... <sighs> It's just, just, kind it's of, just kind of arbitrarily giving them a happy ending they never had, you know? Like, I, that's I, all yeah. it is. Like, it's got to end in a wedding. Okay. Like, but here's what I'm going to say about Kingdom of the Crystal mm. Skull. A movie that I don't think works. It is made with enthusiasm. Steven Spielberg brings a lot of energy to that movie Energy, the movie doesn't entirely warrant. Like that giant car chase through the jungle where Shia LaBeouf is like is sword fighting Kate Blanchett on top of cars and he gets knocked off the car and then he Tarzans his way back into the car chase. That, there's a line uh, where every like nonsensical action movie can cross where you lose the audience no matter how ridiculous it already was. Think that's a line. I think that's a part where it just gets it's too much. Mm. Maybe one of those things I would well, have accepted. And, All of them together yeah. got absurd. But Spielberg didn't half-ass that. He really wanted to make that look spectacular and mm. trying to make it look fun. He wanted to sell it as big as an Indiana Jones movie could be. Yeah, he, he and I think that energy of, uh, is there at least. Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with that. I, I feel hmm. like it's it's a little bit uh, as Indiana Jones films go, a little laconic. Uh, hmm. He added a lot of extra special effects to a scene that didn't need it, no, and he that. didn't really have a, a good tight handle on the story. Oh, that's I, that I, I agree with. I, yes, the, the idea is the um, they're trying to transport this alien skull back to a mysterious temple in the middle of the Amazon jungle, and. Um, the bad guys and the good guys are right next to each other the whole time, and they're just sort of fighting over the same skull as they kind of walk at the same pace. Yeah. 
that's not like exciting. That's not exciting yeah, to watch. The, the, they're, if yeah. they're going to the same place, we just want to see what happens when they get there. What does it matter who has it when they get there? Yeah, they, they, uh, because they're both going to get there at the same time. They're mm-hmm. at, it, it's nonsense. Yeah, yeah it's right. not, it's not structured very well. And that's the thing that if you look back at Raiders, and Raiders again, Raiders is mostly brilliant. I mostly the reason why I look at Raiders and go eh, it's got flaws is because of the extremely ill advised backstory between Indiana Jones and Marion. Uh, which sounds gross in the film's dialogue, but I always, as a kid, I was always like, well, maybe it sounds worse than it was. And then you you read like the behind the scenes, uh, uh, like transcripts of them coming up with that storyline, mm-hmm. and you realize it's even grosser than it sounded. And it just like, the, like Indiana Jones was like a teacher, and she was fourteen, and they had an affair. Yeah, like and, she was uh, like, yeah. supposed to be like really young, and it's super duper creepy. Hmm. And it really e- even like you, you didn't have to carry that part over from the thirties really serials as well. You really didn't have to do that. That's super fucked up, and it, and it just it it makes Indiana Jones look a lot less heroic. It makes him look like a creep, and it throws, like, a huge pall over their entire relationship. So at the end, when it's just like, oh, he was supposed to be with her, I'm like, no, he wasn't. He should be in jail. (laughs) It's kind of messed up. I wish it wasn't in the movie. It's so close to being amazing. But one of the things that movie does that does so beautifully is it understands how to set up an action sequence. And I think you could learn an infinite amount about how to tell a great action story from just the opening sequence of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is you meet Indiana Jones. He's silent. He's working his way through the jungle, gets into this uh, big cave. It's a network of booby traps. And we see him carefully avoiding every booby trap. He's intelligent. He's not running in there like, you know, like some kind of chaotic mm. asshole who just doesn't care. And, 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 he's, and he's with, like, a, a more impetuous guy who yeah. keeps trying that. So yeah, can, a play by Alfred Molina before he was anybody. Yeah, and, uh, we can uh, yeah. kind of see see that illustrated in this this other fellow. And it's it's slow, but they play it as mysterious so that you're interested. You want to know what's the next booby trap going to be. How is Indiana Jones going to avoid this booby trap? And by the time he's actually able to get that golden idol... Mm. And he accidentally does set off the booby traps. We know exactly what he's got to run through. And so now all that stuff he had to carefully avoid, now he is forced by by actual circumstance, not just because it's cool, to actually evade a ton of really deadly obstacles all at once. It's like they stretch the whole sequence out like an elastic band, and then once the actual golden idol is stolen and the and the triggers get set off and the boulder starts chasing him, it snaps. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's super exciting. Simply having an action sequence isn't always enough. It usually isn't. You want to establish it. You want to make sure the audience is clear about it. You want people to be impressed mm. by what you're doing and to be emotionally connected to it. So when I saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the first uh, uh, Indiana Jones movie, not directed by Steven Spielberg, directed by James Mangold, who I think is one of the better genre directors working today. It's pretty good. He he yeah. did a. Um, he says he doesn't want to work in like franchises, but he's actually done multiple. He's done two Wolverine pictures. movies: The Wolverine yeah. and Logan, uh, Logan, both of which are quite good. Logan's great. Logan's one of my favorites. Yeah, Wolverine, um, the Wolverine is very fun though. Like yeah, it's a fun action romp. He also did. Um, uh, 
a film that your dad is probably watching right now. Uh, it's called Ford v Ferrari. Yep, great uh, racing movie. That's he, a really good film, and he did that remake of Three Ten to Yuma that got a lot of acclaim. Excellent. That's uh, a kick-ass movie. That movie rules. <laughs> he did Copland, which is really really great. Copland's okay. He did he did Night and Day, which is a very fun, very flighty kind of action rom com. Mm, I like that it, movie it, more it than ha- you do. Hangs together very poorly. I I think it's, it's, it's really I, shabby film. I think it captures the right energy. Mm. I think it shows uh, that he's got range. At least hmm. he did that rom com Kate and Leopold. I didn't see Kate and Leopold. It's pretty good. It's 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 kind of nice to. I think it was like the last big Meg Ryan rom com hmm. that we got that was actually a big hit. So and it's pretty good. Um, so I think he's like a really dynamic filmmaker. I think he he understands how to adapt to the material. And we're gonna talk about the whole movie, but I was particularly depressed just from watching like the early action sequences and then the action sequences in the middle of the movie and then. The action sequence is the end of the movie. <laughs> How technically everything you're doing should be cool, and yet mm. you're not lingering on anything. You're not setting yeah, up really things cool. very well. There's all of the coolest stunt parts are edited in such a way that it's like really, really choppy. I'm like, I get it. It's going to be a stunt guy on that horse. Let it be a stunt guy on the horse and show me the horse evading a subway train because that's so fucking exciting in theory in theory but in practice uh, all of these things are happening and i'm not terribly invested the uh it's choppy yeah which indiana jones never was and in indiana jones harrison ford is 80 now and mm. uh i'm looking he, good for it no, he, he for 80 he's amazing he looks fine but 80 year olds don't go on tomb raiding adventures and uh they might i don't know i've never been <laughs> look okay if you cast Brian Blessed, I'd buy it. <laughs> yes, I, I think... crashed on the top of Everest, and uh, and yeah. and, uh, and uh, there was there was a hawk up there, and I made very good friends with it, and it scared me down. I think there's a there's an unfortunate tendency when we discuss an action movie like this, where mm. the protagonist is played by an eighty year old actor and is played as an eighty year old, or at least an older man. I don't mm. know if they explicitly say how old he is, but he's an older man. So he's it's on his like the movie begins like after the prologue at the day Indiana Jones retires from from his college mm-hmm. professor job. Um, I think there's a real danger of just sinking into ageism just by saying oh he's an old guy he shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. I think there is a way to make an action movie an uh, adventure movie about characters who are older, but you actually need to adapt to the material or tell the story in such a way. Hmm. That it makes sense for older characters well, he, rather than just pretending they're thirty, the, there which was, isn't quite the same thing. There was a great movie that that did that that yeah. had an older character as as one of the main characters in an adventure film. It was called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade because yeah, Sean Connery, Connery yeah. was in it and he was in his sixties. But Indiana Jones was he was not an experienced adventurer. He kind of like yeah. went slowly through things. He took notes. He wasn't. Uh, yeah. When he was in uh, sort of an action scenario, he was kind of trapped and had to do intimate things that, like, yeah, clever he, he things. Could get a, funny he could things get a gun and, and shoot somebody in close quarters. There was but, a know, bit where Indiana Jones was like, "Oh no, I have to shoot down this plane," and mm. it, Sean Connery actually just disturbed some birds and caused a bird strike. Mm. A cleverer solution, there you go. Well, but yeah. something he could do. Mm. And here you have the same framework for that. There's a younger, uh, dashing archaeologist character played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, an mm. actor I love. Uh, and it's I, hers. I, ne- I never seen her before. So I she's fantastic. Seen, uh, I think. Well, she, you saw her in uh, in Solo. She was the L three uh, droid. So I guess I didn't really see her. Fair enough. She but did, she was in the movie. She did motion capture. I didn't see her face. Touche. Uh, but uh, and I think she's wonderful on this. And it's kind of her story if you think about it. She's the one who pushes the action forward. She's the one who changes over the course of the movie, and yet 
Indiana Jones has to be front and center. You can't, this movie makes more sense in a way. Hmm. If you play it like Last Crusade, where Indiana Jones is there the entire movie, but he doesn't have to be the centerpiece of every single scene and you make room for other characters. Yeah. They refuse to do that. And they did that. And I think that was one of the problems I had with Crystal Skull as well. Mm. Where we want to have Indiana Jones in this movie, but we cannot yield any time. We can have other characters, but they have to be in his periphery constantly. No one actually has a chance to get the limelight for themselves. And it starts becoming a kind of selfish way to tell an ensemble piece, which these later movies are. Yeah. Uh, the plot, real fast. I'll try to make it as simple as I can. Uh, we are introduced in the prologue, which takes place uh, in uh, towards the end of World War II. They digitally de-aged Harrison Ford. It isn't convincing for a second. He looks like a car. He looks like a like a video like a very good video game version of Harrison well, Ford. Uh, and and th- this wasn't uh, like in a lot of these de-aging things where they're either mm. making a model from scratch, like in Tron mm. Legacy, nor are they. Uh, filming the actor and then using special effects to sort of change their face to make it look younger, like mm. in something like The Irishman. Uh, not convincing in The Irishman either. No, no, uh, not really. Mm. Also, De Niro's not convincing as an Irish guy with blue eyes. <laughs> that's but whatever. also true, yeah. Still love that movie. Yeah, that's uh, not, that's, it, I, I'm willing to suspend some disbelief. And, yeah. uh, what they did, and they've been touting this, uh, because this is they, mm. was they went through like the Lucasfilm archive and they found all this unused footage of Harrison Ford from, like, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they were able to find, like, angles and lighting, which would have matched the scene. And then they used that as sort of, like, the map to do the motion capture oh, on man. an 80-year-old Harrison Ford. So wow. it's his body, but it's his real face mm. wrapped around his 80-year-old face. And if they can't even make that and work, you got to wonder what the hell the point is. Uh, it. It what it it's trying to do, and this is a big issue I have with uh, you know Last Crusade on, is that they're trying to lean on uh, nostalgia. They're trying to lean on the good feelings you already had for the older movies. This is why yeah. I, I keep on saying, don't stick with Harrison Ford. Don't update the timeline. Just mm-hmm. go back and stay in that sort of mm-hmm. fantasy world where he was, where he yeah. can always be young. Like I'm sorry, I love Harrison Ford to pieces. Mm-hmm. He's not the only good actor in the world. There are other people who mm-hmm. could be Indiana Jones. And might actually be good at and it. There was already a, t- a television series about the young Indiana Jones. Yeah, played by in... multiple actors. Yeah. Actually, I was uh, Sean Patrick Flannery played the majority of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it he was Jones good. I liked him. Sixteen. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 if you want like an example, like oh, well, he was so iconic. Sean Connery was hi- was iconic mm-hmm. as James Bond. Yeah, do you they, want they like that? Do you want to like take all of Daniel Craig movies out and CG Sean Connery in them? Is that really better? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a yeah, role. And, uh, People play a same role over and over again. It has been since mm-hmm. antiquity. And uh, something I appreciate about Raiders of the Lost Ark and and also um, Last Crusade is they those films open in sort of a serial fa- and Temple of Doom, yeah. this sort of serial fashion where we're yeah. kind of catching up with Indy from the previous chapter a little bit. Yeah, sort he's, of kind of, he's already open, in the yeah. middle of something cool. Yeah, and and that. R- doesn't have anything to do with the main story. It's Not like, really, this is no. just sort of like setting up what he's up to right now in yeah. the world. And he's on this like random adventure and then the story proper will begin. Exactly. Uh, in both crystal skull and this film, this opening where he's in the middle of an adventure is yeah. directly related to the plot. We're going to follow. So yeah. we're already in the middle of the adventure. It doesn't let us 
get the sense that he's this adventure hero part of a big serial of adventures. The actual individual exciting moments, like we, when we talked about Temple of Doom and how even though Temple of Doom is kind of gross in a lot of ways, the individual set pieces are incredible and can kind of be enjoyed in a vacuum because they exist on their own. It is a serialized, even though it's a single film, it's a serialized style of filmmaking. Each piece stands on its own as a set piece. And that gives it kind of this cool adventurous feel where it really feels like we've been through something, not just one scene mm. that lasts, like our one uh, through line throughout the entire movie, but an actual series of, and then we went here and we did this stuff, and then we went here, there's a little red line, and we did this stuff. That adds to an epic feel. It makes it, the episodic nature makes it feel like we've been through a bunch of mini stories, mm. and that makes it feel bigger. Yeah, and I think yeah, the better Indiana Jones films focused on that. Well, and and this is the uh, the big problem with Star Wars as well. Star the first yeah. Star Wars connects up with those old serials. It has that adventurous feeling to it, mm. uh, where everything's kind of like a little bit scrappy, and we're going to take down the bad guys. And it's, it's pretty simplified story. Yeah. Uh, but that it was such a big hit that it sort of erased the memory of those older things yeah. in a lot of ways. And when it came time to make a sequel, it's like well. Now we're with these characters and we have to stay with these characters at infinitum. And now there becomes a way to make a Star Wars film rather than tapping into that sense of adventure from older cinema. The The through line has been broken. The The, the connection to film history is kind of gone. I, I think that's uh, a somewhat extreme way of focusing on that, but fair enough. I see your point. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, I feel like the same thing happened with Indiana Jones. There's now yeah. a way to make Indiana Jones movies. We're not focusing on the old-fashioned adventure aspect of it anymore. We're focusing on the Indiana Jonesness yeah, of the, it. The, the elements the that narrative that must be conveyed. Yeah, yeah, the narrative of the character and the things that have appeared in previous mm. movies are now the things we need to sort of repeat. And that's not necessarily terrible, but mm. it is... It's an all, uncreative way to make a movie. It is within a framework, and this is not a movie that pretends you haven't seen the other movies. It doesn't really reference them too much, like, it's not like a constant, like, hey, remember that time we were in the Temple of Doom kind of thing? Although they, they do reference that. Um, it's it's just, it doesn't pretend to be a standalone. It is definitely the end of a story. Uh, and as a result, we will be comparing it, and you should be cognizant of that. But in any case, there's this big opening sequence. The, the Nazis are losing the war. They're taking as many artifacts as they can. And the one artifact that they have that turns out to be real... Well, they start with uh, some another religious artifact. Yeah, it's actually the Spear of Longinus, mm -hmm. which is the spear that allegedly was the actual killing blow that killed uh, mm -hmm. Christ when he was crucified. And there's a potential Indiana Jones shit you could do. Oh, there's the actual blood of Christ on that. Like, mm -hmm. you, ooh, that could be interesting. What would and, you? How, what kind the, of magic would that hold? And then know? the demon knight shows up from Something. Tales from the Crypt and yeah, fills the key. It'd be cool. Uh, it turns out that's a big MacGuffin, which, I'm sorry, the, the title of the movie spoiled that. It's not called mm -hmm. The Spear of Longinus. Uh, and it turns out that what they're actually looking for is, and I, I've been hearing this title for a long time, and I was just like, I don't know what the fucking Dial of Destiny is. Uh, it is a device that was invented by uh, the great Greek uh, mathematician and inventor Archimedes. Hmm. And it is incredibly ahead of its time, it is full of clockwork machinery, and it's like... Also, did, also based on fact. Sure. Archimedes was a real inventor. Yeah, that part's true. Uh, and it's basically like, oh, Archimedes invented this really cool thing. What does it do? And it becomes very, very clear that the theory, very early on they say this, the theory is 
it's got something to do with time travel. Mm. Now there is a mad uh, there's a there's a Nazi scientist uh, uh, played by Mads Mikkelsen. Mm. So we're, and I think we're back to Nazis. I That's, do think yeah. I do think that the way they incorporated it, it's actually kind of clever though because they incorporated uh, was Operation Paperclip, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, after World War II. This is real. Uh, there were a whole lot of leftover Nazi scientists, and rather than putting all of them in jail, America was like, mm. "Let's put them to work." And many of them did things like work in the space program and help put Americans on the moon. That's a really weird, fucked up part of our history. And the idea is, the movie takes place in 1969. The astronauts have just gotten back from their from their moon voyage, and Mads Mikkelsen is the Nazi scientist who got him there, mm. and he's kind of been given carte blanche, like you you did it, you can do whatever you want, and he is taking his. I guess he corrupted his security guards and made them Nazis, except for one of them, who. Didn't get he, that he has, memo. He has a lot of like murderous henchmen who are and and they're, but they're mercenaries. But, but are they mercenaries? I thought they were yeah, working no, with like the FBI. Like they're like who are, they, who are these guys? They, they talk about like getting money from him. Like they're all well, the, yeah, they're, they're getting paid. Yeah. But I assume that they were like his guard detail. Like it's kind of weird that this Nazi scientist who is working for an incredibly top secret like American project would be able to bring in his own goon squad mm-hmm. for all of these top secret missions that they're. Uh, that's not weird at all. I, I think it's fine. I, the, the bad was, guy has henchmen. I'm fine I'm, with that. I, I'm fine but. with him having henchmen. The way that they're portrayed, I feel like I deserved like two sentences of explanation because mm. I was a little confused. But whatever. It's not the it's not the point. But uh, right. he's he's basically used all of his goodwill uh, to pursue the dial of destiny. I'm gonna find it this time. Meanwhile, Phoebe Waller Bridge, her father, was played by Toby Jones. He helped Indiana Jones in the opening. He became obsessed with the dial. She's looking for the dial. She wants to sell the dial. Indiana Jones is like, hey, my dial. And it's already kind of confusing, actually. It's already, like, way too elaborate. But everyone's after the exact same MacGuffin. Indiana Jones is trying to stop Phoebe Mm Waller-Bridge from being, like, a black market uh, uh, archaeologist selling stuff for the highest bidder. And Mads Mikkelsen uh, wants to do it to win World War II. She... she, claims to want to find this thing that her father was obsessed with, but it turns out uh, she's a bit of a turncoat. Yeah. She wants to steal half of the Dial of Destiny. Of course, it's broken into two pieces. Mm-hmm. Just saw this plot point in a Transformers movie. Yeah. Uh, and Just ones I like to see, like, oh, we broke it into two pieces. Oh, shit, we can't actually put it back. The... Oh, shit, we, we broke, broke the it, hinge! Yeah. <laughs> we can't replace the hinge! How did Archimedes make this? Oh, shit, we fucked up so bad. It's been broken for 3,000 years. It's just a hunk of junk now. God damn it. Yeah, it's That would have been hilarious. Like, and it looks like the Golden Compass from the it Golden does. Compass. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she wants to uh, be, be, be a turncoat, take it all away to Morocco and sell it on the black market. Uh, Indiana Jones, who's 80 and wanted for murder because mm. the bad guy's broke into his lab, has to chase after her. There's mm. uh, a short round type of a character. Like a young yeah. boy character yeah. shows up. Uh, 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 Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character, Helena Shaw, mm-hmm. she has uh, she is a sidekick. Yeah. She is a short round. And again, I put it to you that like with just you just turn your head a slightly different angle, and this is her Temple of Doom story, mm-hmm. where she's kind of she not starts out a bit of a cat. She and starts and learns a, a little bit by yeah, the end. I like that. The, um, I think her character is really really fun. My, I think uh, she's great. My fear, because I I knew this was about the Dial of Destiny, and there was a, a mm-hmm. time travel element to this yeah. this widget. Um, my fear 
was that we were going to throw Harrison Ford into the old movies. I was really like, they, scared they were of that, gonna, too. They were going to start doing time travel, like Back to the Future it into the previous film. I, that would have been just oh insufferable. God, that would have been awful. Uh, luckily, that doesn't happen. No, uh, I don't want to ruin what does, but there, not that's not what, what happens. I'm not going to ruin what does, but um, it's notable that Indiana Jones, now 80 years old, retiring, has always been obsessed with the past. He's an mm. archaeologist. He likes to look to the ancient world. It makes sense that he should encounter an ancient time travel widget that could uh, present the ancient world to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Intriguing. He is alone and very old and very sad, as the life of adventurer would inevitably be. You're gonna slow down at some yeah, point, unless unless you die There's, in the middle of an adventure yeah. somehow, like you just fall into a trap and land mm. on a pit of spikes or something, like Pitman. Mm. You know, you're, um, yeah, he's you're, li- you're, he's you're living gonna... in a, a tiny apartment in yeah. New York. He hates his neighbor. One of the early scenes, he like charges down to his neighbor's apartment. His neighbor's a hippie. Yeah, they're li- they're listening to um, magical mystery magical tour. mystery tour. It should have been Good Morning. Uh, <laughs> And, he, like, shirtless 80-year-old Indiana Jones banging on a hippie's door with a bat saying, turn the music down. That's, that, that, I felt that. Like, that's, <laughs> that's the Indiana Jones I want to see. Kind of the sad, pathetic end of life Indiana Jones. I love Jones. that they're, because I've seen a lot of people complain that I don't want to see that Indiana Jones. And I'm like, grow up. Literally, well, grow up. And then, mm-hmm. like, come back and, like, watch that movie and just yeah. say, don't you kind of want well, here, to see that a Here's the bit? thing. If you want to see the character in adventure mode... Don't come back to his fucking life when he's eighty years old. Yeah, because go it's gonna, watch the movies or make another be, yeah. one with a different actor. Or, I've always argued. I think the, the the thing to do with an Indiana Jones, if you want to keep the series going, mm. animated series mm. like Batman the animated series, Bruce Tim kind of classy. Oh, there you, you go. know, like great. That and would be an, animated characters don't age. You can live forever. Actor, yeah. yeah, you could even if Harrison Ford was game for it, you could even have him voice it. I don't uh, care. That'd be cool. Well, but Bart, like, Bart Simpson has been ten years old yeah. for thirty years. Why not? Uh, I, infinite adventure. Let's yeah. let's do it. I would love that, but mm. we never do it. Uh, so, and I would love to have seen a story about him uh, sort of reckoning with his mm. obsession with the past, how the present has never provided it for him. That yeah. It's always these, these ancient antiquities that have uh, drawn his interest. And this idea of a time travel device presenting the ancient, uh, the tantalizing nature of like the ancient world to him mm-hmm. uh, would have been really great for him as a character. The problem is they want to make an action picture. They don't yeah. want to make this sort well, of slow... Con- like, remember the... Um, mm. Was it just called Mr. Holmes, uh, where it was the... Oh, Ian el- McKellen? The Ian McKellen yeah, film, or yeah. the elderly Sherlock Holmes yeah, story. Yeah, where he was just a beekeeper, and he was remembering, mm. like, the one case that, like, ended his career. Mm. So he did get a little bit of the mystery, but it was mostly just him as an older man. Yeah. Just dealing with, I was an adventurer, those days are basically over, and there you go. What was that movie called? I think it was called Mr. Holmes. It was called Mr. Holmes. Yeah, right. it was pretty good. It was amazing. I, I, it was pretty good. But I, I like that idea. Like, we're going to catch up with this character when they're when they're elderly mm-hmm. and see what their life is like. There and usually a... if, if you live a life of extreme adventure, uh-huh. there, there's going to be like, you know, you're, you're going to hit a midlife crisis at some point. Mm-hmm. You're going to realize you can't adventure the, as, as strongly as you used to. Um, there was a pretty good movie. I want to, I want to give it a shout out because nobody talks about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a movie that came out in 2011 starring Sam Shepard as Butch Cassidy. And the idea is, after the events of Butch Cassidy, those are based on real people. Uh-huh. Uh, after the events of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Butch Cassidy actually survived, and he just lived in seclusion, became an old man. Hmm. 
that's the movie. Like, there's an outlaw, and he gets involved in, like, one last thing, but, like, it's kind of it. Like, yeah. he just lived and got old, and, like, and that the, was the movie. And Pretty I good know, movie, actually. And I know I that James it. Mangold can do this, like, a fantasy character, because he did it with Wolverine. Yeah, yeah Logan's a, movie a great about movie about aging and el- your past, yeah, you know? an elderly superhero, and how about that life didn't doesn't give you a reward at the end. Here's the thing about, and this is the thing I was thinking about. The other uh, uh, Indiana Jones movies, especially, mm-hmm. I think, uh, Raiders and The Last Crusade, the MacGuffin wasn't entirely a MacGuffin because it actually did connect thematically to what was going on. You already mm-hmm. talked about how there's a sort of uh, righteous vengeance wish fulfillment mm-hmm. in Raiders of the Lost Ark with yeah. God actually coming in and killing the Nazis. There's That's not subtle. That's, there you go. Uh, the Last Crusade, we're searching for the Holy Grail. Why are we searching for the Holy Grail? Fame and glory. To bring it back and, and to wow everybody. Oh. Or the Nazis are doing it for their own evil reasons. And what ultimately, if- the only way to get it mm. is through humility and to do it for the right reason, which is actually to save life. Like, that's uh, actually like it, the MacGuffin becomes mm. a, a metaphor for the character's journey. Well, what I appreciate about uh, Last Crusade is yeah. you, 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 the, Shtick is you drink from the Holy Grail, you drink holy water from the Holy Grail, uh-huh. and you're imbued with immortality. Yeah. It can heal, and it can make you live forever. But yeah. one of the conceits of the movie is you only remain immortal as long as you're surrounded by these holy artifacts. And it's actually yeah. sort of a criticism of uh, Christianity, mm-hmm. that you can have this sort of sense of eternal life, but you'll just sort of age in a cave. Yeah. You're not out there in the world yeah. actually helping people. There's a, there's a distinct limitation to it. Mm-hmm. But I'm watching Dial of Destiny. And I'm thinking to myself, here, what is the MacGuffin? The MacGuffin is, theoretically, a device that would allow you to travel through time. Mm. Thematically, what is that? Well, it's a story of an 80-year-old man. Mm. Okay, I'm with you, actually, because you're looking back at your life. There's a lot of things he's very sad about, some of which are new events that have happened since Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. There's so much to talk about, so much life to reconsider that he doesn't. Mm. And that's the thing that's really, really frustrating. There's a couple of lines of dialogue here or there, but they're usually thrown off very quickly. And a lot of the things, there's a moment where like Phoebe Wallerbridge says, if you could travel through time, what would you change? Mm. And the thing he would change is something that happened since Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. We're not looking at his whole life. It's like that bit in the movie where um, uh, you have characters having a flashback to characters we met previously in a movie, but characters they've known their whole lives, like their parents or something. But uh, we didn't have the budget, time, or inclination to film any scenes that we didn't actually see in the movie. So it looks like the character's only memory of their parents was something that happened last week. (laughs) And that's not how life works. That's not how time works. And in the case of Indiana Jones, we've seen a lot of his adventures. We know so much about him. To tell a story that is ostensibly about time, Mm. and then to give time such a short shrift thematically kind of pissed me off actually. But the thing that I think works, there's, there's, there's two things I think work. One, John Williams, he can tell a story. I, that's so under, that's such an understatement, but like he's, he's not like coming up with a new iconic theme or anything, but he makes everything so much more exciting than it really should be. (laughs) Um, but and I but I also like I like Phoebe Waller-Bridge as a character. I like her as a mm. performer. I like the journey that her character goes on. It's a decision she makes at the beginning of the movie regarding Indiana Jones that is the exact opposite of the decision she makes at the end of the movie regarding Indiana Jones. Her values have shifted. Mm. 
Her story is interesting. Her story is exciting. Her story isn't pat because she's still in a place where she could make selfish decisions and mistakes that she has to rectify. I want more of her and less of Indiana Jones. And in a movie <laughs> called Indiana Jones and, and then it doesn't matter what's after that, you put Indiana Jones in the title, the balance is off. You either didn't tell the Indiana Jones story that like made sense for the narrative you're doing, or you got too distracted by another character. Something happened. Something fell apart. So after watching this movie, and frankly not being very into it, it's got moments, but hmm. I thought about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and I, th- I said to myself, you know, that's also a big mess. It's also lots of... Uh, hmm. Misses its focus, doesn't thematically connect it very well. At least the action sequences are more fun. <laughs> and that's kind of what I boiled down to. Like, a... it felt more... In- if... it felt, it, here's the thing. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull to me, feels like a bad Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> Dial of Destiny doesn't feel very much like an Indiana Jones movie, mm. even though it's got all of the Indiana Jones trappings. There's mm. a hollowness to it, where we wanted to recreate something, but we didn't actually want to put the effort in to make it meaningful and actually yeah, I, function. I, I, I'm completely disheartened by this whole series now, because we've yeah. gone back to the well too many times. Yeah. I mean, even... Last Crusade was supposed to be okay. There, there's your nostalgia blast. Everyone was tired. They were, we're tired of do- making it then. Even yeah, then, they were like, the- "Okay, but this is the last one." And uh, yeah, Spielberg was ready to put it down. Yeah. George Lucas was the only one interested. Um, yeah. Nobody really wanted to make it. Nobody really wanted to make Crystal Skull. I don't think anybody really wanted that. No, that one just felt like, eh, we got the time. Yeah, I <laughs> like the, the timing worked out in our schedule. Well, and by and the time we it. got to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I mean. Spielberg had turned a corner in his career at that point. Oh, yeah, he was a very uh, different filmmaker. In, in the early 2000s, he sort of started to focus on a lot more political movies, mm-hmm. films with uh, about older history that reflected very directly mm-hmm. onto modern history. A lot more complicated uh, thematically yeah. as well. And, even, and I, even, even his mainstream films like War of the Worlds mm-hmm. were a lot more dour. Yeah, you yeah. Know? and I feel like when it came to uh, the big action pictures that he was making after 2000, uh, his heart just wasn't in it. I, I feel like he was experimenting with technical stuff yeah. rather than uh, being excited about storytelling. I maintain that uh, the the best Indiana Jones movie mm-hmm. of the 21st century is Tintin. And I don't even like Tintin. I like Tintin I, I, fine. I, I like I the technology in Tintin. I think, there, I think just, there's a just certain... It's as convoluted as any of his other It's just as convoluted, but there's a certain wonder to it, and I think it mm-hmm. works really, really nice. There's a, there's a sequence... Ordinarily, when you do a um, a one take sequence, that's a that's a filmmaker showing off, and it's like, look what we really did. Look at the level of complexity I was able to of weave. Tintin's animated. I'm getting yeah. to that. <laughs> Let me get to the point. Okay. In live action, it means so much more, and if you can do it without the fake cuts, I'm looking at you, Extraction Two. If you can do it without the fake cuts, all the more impressive. Mm. But still, a technical wonder. Tintin does it in animation, and you might think to yourself, well, I guess that means nothing then. The actual level of complexity in that shot is pretty amazing because they had to work out the complex geography of multiple lines of action going through an entire city at once. It's actually, like, incredibly in-depth and complicated. Mm. So I'm actually, in a weird way, not maybe not as impressed, but I'm very impressed by it. Okay. There's a certain whirligig uh, uh, mm. quality to that film that I really enjoy. 
Okay. So I would say, you know, I think my, Last Crusade is probably my favorite. Then Raiders. Then I guess Temple of Doom. And then Ten Ten. <laughs> and then I guess Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Hmm. And then Dial of Destiny, which I don't even hate. I just don't think it really works. I wasn't no, terribly invested in it, and I didn't need it. The only thing I needed was an action movie starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and we kind of yeah, I, forgot to like make that the point. Yeah, it, 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 it's watchable, but it's soulless. I feel yeah. like uh, not. I'm not the only one in this movie who's bored with this movie. I feel yeah. like a lot of the makers were kind of bored with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a very perfunctory uh, nature to it. I feel like... Uh, it feels like a, like a corporate entity. It feels like a yeah. big commercial product, and I hate it when movies feel that Mandated, way. Um, yeah. And you start thinking about well, you know the the, the deals, the production, the the yeah. actual like finances of this a movie like this, which is an incredibly expensive movie. Um, you and you can just say, oh well, this is when Disney bought the Lucasfilm library. It's mm-hmm. like they have Star Wars, but they also have Indiana Jones. What are they got to do, do with something that? with it? We yeah. have to do something with. It. Let's do another Indiana Jones movie. Let's do yeah. a big expensive one. Let's get people, Harrison Ford. Back. People like, didn't like it when we recast Harrison Ford in Solo, so we have to get the have real, to get Harrison, Ford real back. Harrison Ford back and like, get some of the other actors that are coming back. Solo, and yeah, John, Jonathan Rhys Davies, who's uh, yeah. uh, played Sala and Raiders and and yeah. Last Crusade, he's back as well. Yeah. Um, who yo know, he he's full of life. He loves oh, he's this great. Kind of stuff. Yeah, um, he's fine. I, I found an interview with uh, Jonathan Reese Davies really recently, and he um, he used to like hate the idea that he had to go to like fan conventions because he was mm. in Indiana Jones, he was in Lord of the Rings, he's been in like fan favorite kinds of movies. It's like I'm, I'm an actor. I'd rather mm. just act. I don't want to just sort of sign pictures. But then. After so many years of hear, of people coming up to him saying uh, things like, I love your movies and you've changed my life, it's like he started to listen after a while. It's like, yeah. you know what? Actually, I like having those conversations with people. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. great to hear that people were moved by a film you were in. I, I interviewed him once mm-hmm. and uh, we talked about why he wasn't in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Uh-huh. And he said, they asked. And I said, no. Because they didn't want me to be in the movie and do anything they wanted me to clap in the wedding scene and they didn't even want me to be on set. They were going to like set, oh, put me in front like of a the, green screen in a screen. chair and I was like, no. <laughs> so I'm glad they were able to give him enough to do that he was actually like willing to do the movie. Mm. Good for him. Um, g- good for everyone who got their paycheck. This movie cost $300 million. It doesn't look like it. No, it, the, the special effects look like, pretty pretty cheap. There's yeah. a, the editing is really bad. They're Editing's speeding really through, bad. and and it has that artificial quality where yeah. you're clear. They're clearly not on location. Yeah, they're speeding through a lot of scenes. They're sort of mm. rushing through the, the exposition as if it's the boring part. Mm. They're, but they're also rushing through the action sequence. They're rushing through the moments of wonder, and that's the mm. thing that pisses me off the most. The things that like if we just dwelled on this for a second, it mm. should be really good. Cool. There's a scene of this movie where Indiana Jones gets to like actually like go down under the the ocean waves to like a sunken wreck Mm. and it's full of deadly eels and i'm like that's awesome can we see that good no fuck okay uh well here's a scene where indiana jones steals a horse and has a horse versus motorcycle chase in the middle of a ticker tape parade for the astronauts returning from the apollo uh moon landing that's gorgeous. You get all of that, like all of those ticker tape giving you this wonderful planes of of depth. That's so fucking cool. Can we get a couple of good shots of that? Maybe half of one. Damn. Yeah. Show us! 
You're showing it. You're showing us things we can't see. We can't do. Show yeah, us. So, Let us enjoy them. Let us go. Wow! Look at that. Don't yeah. just cut so quickly that we get the gist of it. Yeah, that pisses me off. Th- there's uh, and there there's going to be some people who are uh, and I hear this a lot. Um, mm. You know, because something is in a movie that makes it good, and mm. it's just because you had a, like a fun idea doesn't mm. mean you executed it well. Exactly. Uh, you know, th- these are some fun notions. Just, but you know, if you're completely mm. bored watching them, uh, this is a, a, an example I've cited before. I like uh, strange kind of novelty music. I like sure. uh, innovative ideas with weird old genres, and I uh, came upon a band. Uh, who did uh, sort of this big extended, like, seven-minute-long klezmer polka. Oh, wow. Like, like, Jewish wedding music. Yeah. And the lyrics were the story of Tracy Lords. It was this big, long, epic, biographical klezmer polka about the life of Tracy I'm gonna, Lords. I'm going to say this right now, and I'm uh, sure we're all thinking it. Hmm. That again? <laughs> again, yeah, again Tuesday. With this? Jesus. Uh, Back in 2000, like Evanescence did a whole album about that. Yeah, and I have actually came upon a, a polka band. It's, they're called Those Darn Accordions who did the same with Lawrence Welk. But they're mm. an accordion band that makes sense with Lawrence Welk. Mm. Uh, Tracy Lords was just sort of like... That's really random. It's, yeah. yeah, a little bit random. But yeah. that's that's the joke. Yeah. Um, fun idea, right? Sure. It's an interesting I, concept. Like, I, I almost bought the record just based on the concept. Luckily, there are those listening stations in the mm. record store. So you I didn't was, waste your money. I listened to some of it. And it was very bad. That's a shame. It it was the the music wasn't on the rhymes weren't mm. that clever. Uh, they didn't really have like a comment on Tracy Lords. Yeah. Like they just had the idea. You have to do it well. Yeah, I feel that way about a lot of modern action films. Sure. We have a great idea for an action sequence. Mm-hmm. We're gonna film it in like the most boring way possible. Yeah. There's not going to be any remember, thrill or excitement or wonderment to it. I've, and I've, mo- a lot of people respond to the fact that it happened at all. Yeah. And again, I it's okay to have higher standards than that. I remember mm-hmm. I, w- I was hearing, um, every once in a while there's a filmmaker, and they get a reputation maybe for making bad movies. Sometimes deserved, sometimes not. And you say to yourself, how do they keep getting projects? Mm. But then you hear them talk. Maybe it's a behind-the-scenes clip, or maybe they're at Comic-Con, or maybe you get to meet them, as we have sometimes. And you realize they're great in the room. Mm. Because the ideas are fine, because the ideas are solid, you think to yourself, oh, that movie's probably going to be pretty cool. You and I interviewed Uva Boll. <laughs> having a knowing char- full char- well charismatic idea filled man yeah like like seriously knowing full well the shitty movies that he made yeah, we, and, we had seen multiple movies yeah, of his at this, that this point. is like the we, early yeah. 2010s but regardless he, he was already notorious and with good cause he made, he made mostly really really bad films and the films he made that weren't really really bad films were merely bad and he pitched us his idea for a sequel to In the Name of the King, A Dungeon Siege Tale, a very bad movie. Yeah, it hadn't been made when he was pitching this. The to sequel us, but... hadn't been made, and he was like, I had this idea, and he pitched us the idea, and you and I were both like, That's, that's a fun, that's, that's that's a fun idea. That yeah. sounds fun. I'd actually like to see that. And then we both saw that movie that came out of it, and it sucked. <laughs> yep. I've heard. Uh, L- low I've, budget, badly yeah. films, bad scripts. Yeah. Just... Sometimes a good idea isn't enough. You actually have to be able to put it together. And there's sometimes there's circumstances outside your control. But if you're spending $300 million, you you have the means. Yeah. yeah. They, they should not be like, ah, it could be worse. Like, that's 
all that we expect yeah, of this? I, th- this is a, another sign that I, I feel like we're kind of at the end of a certain type of blockbuster filmmaking. Mm. We had a whole decade of this kind of stuff where well, it's all uh, you know, revisiting old properties, and some of them were s- such big hits yeah. that that they kept making them. Like Transformers is a good example. Transformers there. was a yeah. big one. They kept uh, making all, a billion those, dollars. You got to keep making them. All, I get all those it. Avengers movies kept yeah. making money when they f- when Disney bought Lucasfilm. They put out a new Star Wars movie. That's one of the highest grossing films of all time. Well, the first two that they put. No, the mm. first uh, yeah. Star like Wars Last Jedi f- also made over a billion dollars. I think Star Rogue One did Star really Wars well. The too, Force yeah. Awakens was a huge, huge hit. Yeah, and but they fl- they oversaturated the market. They flooded mm-hmm. the marketplace. Uh, all of these things are now overexposed. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get excited by the mere presence of these things. And I think there's also something to be said. And and we're we're kind of shifting our criticism here to more the industry than this mm-hmm. specific film. I want to be clear about that because talking about the way that the industry comports itself and the way that they decide what movies to make and how to make them isn't exactly the same as the kind of film criticism we usually engage in. We're talking about the larger sort of macro criticism. Different vibe. Um, We might be hitting a point, I think, where our commitment to mining nostalgia for entertainment is getting lapped by the age of our new generation. That's, that's definitely part of it. I yeah. think I honestly think, and, and again, it's hard to, this is a theory, it's hard to really quantify, I can't interview everybody. But I do know that I meet young people who look at a film like Indiana Jones, or even Star Wars, and say to themselves, that really wasn't made for me. Mm. That, was, that was my dad's movies. I've 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 yeah. had enough conversations with the younger people to yeah. know what they're getting at, but I can say that yeah. it's guys my age yeah. who are kind of hammering on these old toys yeah. that they're just not putting down. And, and listen, it, and that's listen. When we were young, our parents' stuff didn't mm. always appeal to us as much as it did to our parents. Yeah, what what that's we got just, is we, we didn't know, grow up with it. It doesn't mean it doesn't have that connection to us, you know. Curiously, uh, thanks to sort of the caprices of reruns, yeah. a lot of my parents' generation kind of leaked into our, it leaked into Gen X. Yeah. But uh, we took it and made it kind of ironic. Yeah. Look at the Brady Bunch movie from the 90s, That's for a instance. great example yeah. where that is a movie where if that movie had been made in 1985, there was mm. absolutely no way it would have been made like that. No, absolutely. But because it was made in the middle of Generation X, Generation X knew the Brady Bunch. We might have even had a certain fondness for the Brady Bunch, but we were detached from the Brady Bunch. Yeah, yeah. Like, so we, it was something we consumed but didn't connect to. Yeah. But it was the only culture we had, so what we did was send it up. <laughs> yeah. We kind of made fun of it a little bit. That Brady Bunch movie, mm-hmm. the Brady Bunch are the same as they were in the 70s, but it's set in the 90s. That's that's interesting enough. That's the vibe I'm getting, that Brady Bunch movie, that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I don't want to, like, build it up in my head. But I feel like that's what the marketing is trying to do for Barbie. Like yeah. <laughs> there's 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 this there's this tagline in the Barbie trail I saw it in front of Indiana Jones that was if you love Barbie this movie is for yeah. you if you hate Barbie this, this movie yeah. is for you and I feel like you could have given the exact same tagline to the Brady Bunch movie if mm. you love the Brady Bunch movie if you love the Brady Bunch you'll love the Brady Bunch movie mm. if you hate the Brady Bunch you could also love the Brady Bunch movie because there's a certain detachment mm. and awareness not just of the characters and the world but what they mean or what they don't mean. Yeah, and I think that's something that is potentially very interesting. That's meta used very, very well. Yeah. So I, I feel like until a new generation mm-hmm. gets their hands on yeah. our old shit, yeah, it's going to stay uninteresting. Well, I, I, one last example I'll use because it's interesting. Because a lot of people are like, oh, well, like 
Top Gun worked. Yeah, Top Gun did work. It's not a universal formula. But I want you to think about another Tom Cruise franchise. Mission Impossible. Okay. Some people... Seven pretty soon. Yeah. Some people forget or don't remember or don't care that that was an adaptation of a TV series as well. It was a TV (laughs) series from the 60s and the early 70s and it kept kind of getting rebooted every once in a while uh, in the interim. And when Tom Cruise got around to making a movie out of it with Brian De Palma... They killed the cast and they turned the protagonist of the show into the villain and made a brand new character no one ever cared about before, a new young hot character, self-insert fan fiction more or less, into the star of the film. And now those movies make crazy money that has become the dominant version of the Mission Impossible concept and people don't care. They like what it became. Maybe we could learn something from that as well as the success of Top Gun Maverick. That it is okay, it is forgivable that future generations will get over it if you're a little more daring with it and don't treat everything like it's gospel and actually allow yourself to do something a little different. Yeah. Recast Indiana Jones. I literally don't care. <laughs> I literally don't. Make a, make a spinoff. Uh, uh, people have been talking about, hey... The, the guy who played Short Round just won an Oscar. What if we gave yeah, him K- a movie? K- cool. Kehui K- Kwan is, is I would the pay to see that. Yeah. I would pay to see that. Yeah. Give Phoebe Waller-Bridge a movie. I would pay mm-hmm. to see that. You get all of the same adventure, the same universe, all of the stuff you like about it, but now it's for a new generation. It's for a new audience. <laughs> that doesn't have to be bad. It's been done badly. Yeah. But so has Reverence. Reverence has been done badly, too. Oh, yeah. Just do it well. Uh, anyway, we, we've kind of gone off on a long well, rant here. Uh, but this connects up to, to Mad Heidi, if I can m- move into that one. Uh, Mad- <laughs> I really didn't think that would be the segue, but okay. Let's no, because uh, Mad Heidi is also based on a certain kind of nostalgia. Um, mm. w- I've whined endlessly on this show about a, a certain generation of neo-grindhouse, mm. where uh, a, lot, a certain generation of filmmakers got their hands on a lot of the exploitation movies of the 1970s mm-hmm. and made kind of jokey versions of that. Uh, And this predates the movie Grindhouse. Uh, Some filmmakers were doing this uh, early on, and we had some that were stylish and kind of interesting, but not terribly Mm. remarkable, like The Man with the Iron Fists, um, if you saw that movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. The one with, like, Russell Crowe and... uh, Russell uh, Crowe's in it. uh, The RZA, yeah. Yeah, the the RZA wrote wrote and directed. That's pretty good. That was was post-Grindhouse, but yeah. Um, uh, uh, Black Dynamite comedy version of it, yeah, but yeah, absolutely um, a riff, you know. Uh, Undercover the, Brother. The, the, prob- well, the problem with a lot of those it. those old exploitation yeah. movies is they're real, they're over the top, right? They're yeah. really violent and kind of strange, and sometimes they have like really bad, weird dialogue. But they're really entertaining. Those old grindhouse movies. Mm-hmm. They uh, they knew that the audience wanted something incredibly prurient, so they're full of a lot of violence, and they're full of a lot of sex, and they're full of a lot of horror, uh, and. Uh, there's sort of like a an, like a lizard brain appeal to those mm. kinds of movies. Well, people said, like I, those movies. I've said it a million times. Mm. Exploitation cinema, it doesn't exploit the people making the movie. It exploits the exploits audience. The audience. Yeah, yeah. It exploits the audience and their desire to see something tawdry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and filmmakers are like, hey, I like tawdry movies. This is for an audience who also wants something tawdry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, straight up honest way to make a, it's a, a film it's, 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 it's a wonderful way to make yeah, entertainment yeah. that's one of the I, I've 
argued sometimes that that's one of the primary functions of cinema is yeah. to give us the basest form of entertainment. I have. want a triple decker uh, cheeseburger mm. dripping with cheese, giant slabs mm. of bacon. Yeah. Is it good for me? No. Is it going to taste really good today? Yes. Are you going to feel a little sick afterwards? Maybe. Yes. <laughs> but it's what I want yeah. right now. But in uh, the early 2000s, uh, there, this, there came this sort of wave of, I guess it was mid-2000s, this, this wave of neo-Grindhouse, or people are going to take these Grindhouse ideas and kind of explode them, make them a lot bigger than yeah. they, they were in the 1970s. Yeah, like, the, the uh, Grindhouse movie was kind of the er example of that, mm. where especially Robert Rodriguez, mm. he took, you know, concept zombies in a town, fine. But he was like, but what if it was made with like a blockbuster mentality? I'm like, it wouldn't have been. Mm. That's you doing that. Yeah. You are not actually recreating the vibe. You are taking the basic sort of aesthetic and doing something you do now, yeah. which is so different. A lot of these movies took really wild concepts and just like Indiana Jones, hoped the concept would be enough. Yeah. Um, and those movies are invariably disappointing. Mm. Sometimes you'll get a good one like Hobo with a Shotgun. That's quite that, good. That's, yeah. a, that's a good that one. That movie kicks um, ass. Uh, but yeah, super over the top. Like people get decapitated in the first five yeah. minutes of that movie. But, it, it, um, but it's anchored by Rucker Hauer, who's giving a real performance. Yeah, like he, he's, he, he's not, this is not a comic performance like, for him. I, I'm not kidding. If I were like involved in that movie, I would have, it wouldn't have worked, but it would have tried to get him an Oscar nomination. <laughs> he deserves it. He deserved at the very least like a full page ad in variety at least once like can we at least admit that he deserved to be in the running at least just in the running he, he gives a legitimately good performance so good in, in with a shotgun uh the problem with a lot of the neo grindhouse films is the makers don't love grindhouse no they they're, they're actually of kind of mocking grindhouse a little yeah, bit they and don't have the connection at all the whole point of these movies is do something really wild because wild shit is fun yeah not because it's stupid and i, I got that sense a lot they're kind yeah, of looking down on their own material you shouldn't make something with the attitude that you're better than it yeah that's yeah. that's especially if you're like making something within that realm mm. so it always comes across so, as insincere, and people don't like you for it. And that, unfortunately, is the main problem with something like Mad Heidi. Ah. Uh, this was a crowdfunded film. Uh, they're billing it as a Swiss exploitation action horror comedy. Okay. It's an adaptation of the novel Heidi, mm. but in sort of a grindhouse milieu. Uh, take a drink. Uh, Heidi is a film, or it was originally a book. But it's been filmed. I think Shirley Temple played Heidi once. Yeah. Um, it's been, it, and it's about a girl. It used to be adapted pretty regularly. I haven't seen a new yeah, version. Yeah, was like there was like an anime time. Heidi. I think for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, here's here's yeah. what I know about Heidi, and I know uh, I, I have seen Johanna Spiri Spiri. Uh, I have wrote seen the novel. multiple adaptations. I've never read it, but I've seen multiple adaptations of Heidi. Hmm. I saw the Shirley Temple version, and I saw some version made in the eighties or nineties. I don't really remember the details, but I did watch it. Here's what I remember about Heidi. There's a young girl. Mm-hmm. Her name is Heidi. There's some mountains. And she runs around them a bit. Yeah. That's all I remember from Heidi. It's, that's, it's... Not a, that's not a critique of Heidi. That's a critique of me, or possibly those adaptations. Mm. But, like, I, I don't really have I, a sense I, of yeah, Heidi. I, I don't remember a lot about Heidi. Yeah. It, I think that it, it's... I think it's one of the best-selling like works of children literature of all time. Sure. Uh, 
And I think it just sort of is this beatific fantasy of this young girl named yeah. Heidi who is running around in the Swiss Alps and just having a, a marvelous time of it, living with her grandfather. Yeah. Um, my, point, okay. my point is simply, um, if we're worried about that people, like younger generations, aren't like super into Indiana Jones, mm. if I have seen multiple Heidi movies and I don't remember Heidi, <laughs> that might not be the best start. Yeah. And... and Please write in if you're like under the age of twenty and you've read Heidi. I, oh, I, wanna, I would love that. I want to know if Heidi is still being like assigned in schools or still discussed in any capacity. I, I, Same with Little House on the Prairie. Like these kinds of yeah. beatific uh, wilderness novels seem to be out of favor right now. And, and it's unfortunate. It's all like, more like magic and and uh, fantasy. I, I think of kids novels. should be reading older young fiction because some of it is really really wonderful mm. uh my mother hated the disney mary poppins so much that she insisted i read the books i'm glad she did because they're better than the movie that's <laughs> uh, not even her talking i admit the movie is wonderful in a lot of ways the books are a different entity uh but yeah sometimes everyone's like well it's a good thing the movie exists so that the books can still be uh, finding an audience and i'm like when was the last time you read mary poppins <laughs> Right. People don't like they they get or, satisfied or, with the movie. When, when was the Occasionally last time you, they do, but it's not common. You went back to like yeah. watch the old like Republic serials that inspired Indiana Jones. Like those are well, we do, popular. but like you and I do. But, but it's yeah, our, we're, literally our job. But, like, but we're weird freaks. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I find it interesting, but like a lot of people, like it's available. Some people do watch it. I love our listeners because I know a lot of our listeners are interested hmm. in older cinema and older uh, movies and pulp movies, obscure movies. Uh, we get a lot of people writing to us all the time. It's great. I love yeah. that there it, there are people who are still interested. Yeah, it's not mainstream. Well, I think so, we can all we, we can all agree on that. But uh, so little girl running around the Alps. Her name is Heidi. Okay, now first of all, now she's like twenty two years old and she's like a buxom babe. That's your first thing. Okay. Uh, also, this Switzerland that she lives in is Nazi Germany. Okay. And, and all right. It's, it's, all right. Uh, and it's all overseen right. by uh, by like a vicious fascist dictator played by Casper Van Dien because of course. <laughs> like I, I've talked to Casper Van Dien. I've interviewed him. I actually think he's like a dedicated actor, but he does mm. shit. Like he, he does really I, shitty. I, I'm always fascinated because I know like. Like he he doesn't have like a huge amount of range, but I think he's a better actor than he gets credit for, yeah. uh, and. Uh, but man, his agent is just not doing him any favors. He's just doing yeah. all this garbage. And yeah, now he's playing this sort of like very Hitler-ish like fascist dictator of this alternate universe version of Switzerland. And he uh, intends to rule the world's cheese supply. That's his ambition. It's all okay. cheese related. Oh, so it's like it's the box trolls. Kind of like the box trolls. Yes. So that that that's his big fascist plan. It's something to do with cheese. Uh, Heidi has like a hot stud young boyfriend who is killed by the fascist dictatorship, so she has to gather up weapons, train, uh, and infiltrate the fascist uh, castle. There's like a scene with ninja nuns at one point. She has to use weapons and commit all these horrendous acts of violence to uh, get her revenge. In, okay. an explo- in an exploitation movie kind of way. Okay. Uh, movies in and out. I think it's like 80 minutes. Like, well, bless them for that. Yeah. If you're making going to make a Grindhouse movie, don't make it a mi- like 88 minutes tops with credits. I'm going to throw it out there. If you're making a movie mm-hmm. and you can make it for 90 minutes. 
Stay there. Do it. That's a great zone to be in. I would love in. to have seen an Indiana Jones film. Just let's a 90-minute pop. There's a good just, animated movie. Fine. There's a good anime movie came out a couple years ago called Pompo the Cinephile. Uh-huh. Uh, and it, it, it's been out long enough that if you really wanted to see it, you probably did. So I'm going to talk a bit about the ending. If you really don't want to know about it, jump ahead, I guess. But... Uh, it's a story about a young kid who is like an intern at a big studio and the studio head sees something in him and decides to give him a chance to direct a movie. Okay. And the first half is him directing a movie and he's got big stars in it and he's completely frazzled and dazzled and doesn't know how he got here. The second half of the movie is him in the editing room. <laughs> oh, that's fun. And, and it's just him trying to figure out how the fuck do I get a movie out of this? Every single cut he makes is like four hours long. takes an hour to get to the first major plot point. Like, he's totally fucked. The whole fucking movie in the second half is about him learning he's not special and he needs to serve the needs of the story. Uh-huh. And at the end of the movie, he wins an Academy Award. The, the anime version of it, it's a fake mm-hmm. one, but he wins an Academy Award and people ask him, what's your favorite part of the movie that you made? And he said, my favorite part is that it's 90 minutes long. (laughs) He says that when the anime movie we're watching hits 90 minutes and cuts to the credits. I love it. Fucking brilliant. Oh, I love that ending so... The movie is just okay. The ending is so great. Love it so much. So, yeah. Uh, If you can make your movie tight, mm -hmm. do it. It's great. Uh... If the the premise I described about Matt Heidi sounds amusing to you, then maybe you'll get a little bit of thrill out of it. Yeah, but it's clearly made it's, with an audience it's, in mind. It's not going to... The laughs aren't organic. Everything mm. is feels really, really forced. Everything feels really, really staged. It's mm. really kind of insufferable. Uh, it's not as bad as some of the other sort of neo-grindhouse films I've seen, which really kind of hate the material. This one's trying to at least have some fun. Mm. It's a little bit bright. Uh, the, the action could have been a lot slicker and a lot more uh, innovative. Violence can be fun and innovative. I think this doesn't really do it. Um, Casper Van Dien is really going for like a, a Mel Brooks kind of a performance. He's really kind of trying okay. to overplay it. It's not. The, it can be funny. Not not the type of role he's used to playing. And I feel like he, I've never seen him play sort of a broad comedy role like this before. But it. But uh, he's done broad before. No, like I'm trying to think. Troopers is pretty. Oh broad yeah, role, but, but that's um, that's not the same vibe. But at that's all, a, but that's a satire. Uh, I've seen him play broad comedy. I'm trying to think now. But yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it it, yeah, it ends up uh, starting with a fun like this cheeky concept. But if you're going to start with a cheeky concept, you have to be a cheeky person. And I feel like the uh, the filmmakers aren't. They're trying to let the concept itself do all of the heavy lifting without really bringing any kind of energy or mm. voice to it. Uh, you have to be really stylish and genuinely strange to make a movie like this. And it's not genuinely strange. Make, if, if you're going to make a weird movie, make a weird movie. If you're going to make a violent one, make it really violent, be really creative about it. Uh, and you can do that on a budget. You can mm. do that on a shoestring. Uh, and yeah, they just, they, these aren't the kinds of filmmakers to, to make that happen. Fair enough. Uh, you want to move on to Nimona? Sure, we can talk about Nimona. Yeah, Nimona. Uh, Nimona is uh, a new animated film. It's on Netflix. It was originally... Boy, this one going on a journey. It was originally a graphic novel. Uh, it was uh, created by J.D. Stevenson, uh, who would go on to work on the absolutely wonderful uh, animated reboot of She-Ra. Like, genuinely great. <laughs> like, boy, howdy is it? Do I love it? Uh, and I actually like really like the original comic that uh, Nimona is based on. Uh, it was picked up by Fox. Fox was going to make it as an animated movie. Disney purchased Fox. Disney 
apparently, as is my understanding, realized how overtly queer the movie is, said, can we tone that down a bit? <laughs> that apparently wait, there was some look, give and take. We, we want to sell this to homophobes? Yeah. Can you cut out anything that's queer? Yeah, can you make it so that, uh, you know, like, people who are, you know, just, just really don't like gay people uh, can feel catered to, I guess? Weird choices. Um, we, and, we, we uh, want to capture that valuable bigot market. Yeah. But uh, eventually, the studio that was making the movie, Blue Sky, uh, which Disney, Disney had acquired, Disney decided that that was superfluous to their needs, because they're already Disney, mm. uh, and they shuttered it. Got rid of the whole thing. Nimona was rescued by the production company Annapurna. Mm-hmm. Which typically does uh, more films along like an independent bent. It's usually not like big animated films for for kids or families. Uh, and then it ended up getting picked up for distribution by Netflix. What a ride! Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie itself uh, is takes place in an interesting universe. It takes place in a fantasy fairy tale type universe, but it's the fa- fantasy it's a fantasy sci-fi. Universe, well, the fantasy yeah. the opening prologue is about how. Uh, once a long time ago in a magical forest, there was a brave hero who protected a town from a giant monster uh, and said never again. And they erected these giant walls to protect themselves from the giant monster. Uh, and now it's been a thousand years later and time has continued as it would. Technology has evolved. And now even though there are knights errant, even though there are shape-shifting monsters and the like, we also have cell phones and cars. Uh, the, 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 the same premise as Onward, really. Basically. Uh, although a little bit more futuristic than Onward. There's yeah. a bit more Fu- sci-fi tech. Uh, onward, present this, day, this one's like... This one's got like a hundred years in the a future. A robot yeah. arm. But like... Um, yeah, uh, the opening of the movie, there is a heroic uh, knight who, unlike other knights who were sort of grandfathered into it, literally, you have to be born into mm-hmm. knighthood to protect the, the city... Uh, he was uh, just a, a working-class kid, had a lot of dreams. The queen said, oh, yeah, you can be a knight. Kind of mm. bucking tradition. People were very nervous about it. I don't know. Can we, can we trust him? He's, he's, he's an outsider. How strange. And, and his boyfriend is already a knight. So, yeah. like, so there's, there's a lot at stake yeah. for him. And overtly boyfriend. Not suggested. No, like they're, Actually they're, in dialogue they say, and they important to the story. They say that they love each other. They kiss on camera. It it's is like important they're... to the story. <laughs> it could not be <laughs> cut out. It's queer. It's great. Really, really nice. Mm. Just, and, it's, and, it's, and it's organic. Mm. And like, it's like, it actually just fits in the story real nice. Um... So it's this great moment, and it's Sir Ballister, and he is ready to be knighted in front of everybody. He's played by Riz Ahmed. Yeah, Riz Ahmed, great. Oscar winner Riz Ahmed. Uh, he, while he's being knighted, he's framed for murder. The queen gets assassinated. Everyone, It looks to all the world like he did it. He didn't. Uh, and he goes on the run. Uh, his boyfriend, while protecting, seeming to protect the kingdom and the queen, cuts off Riz Ahmed's arm. Mm. And I love how bad he feels about it too. He's really like, conflicted. I, I would say that's that's like sort of a breakup moment. Like yeah. you don't you don't stay with somebody who cuts off your arm. Yeah, it's kind of it's but it's complicated. Uh, and uh, now he's public enemy number one, and this uh, this uh, uh, attracts the attention well, of, of of a mysterious he, shapeshifter named he, Nimona, played by he, Chloe uh, Grace Moretz. He looks like he's an assassin. He's yeah. had his arm cut off, so he's got a, 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 a robot arm. He's always he wearing wears, a black cloak. He's a black cloak, and he wears black armor. And he's, he's moved got a into scar a, over his eye. And he's moved into a basement room where he's like put up pictures. Like he's trying to figure out the conspiracy. 
from all of the superficial trappings, he's a supervillain. Yeah. Because he looks like a supervillain, yeah. he's attracted a demon to serve as his imp. Yeah, basically, if you've ever seen like the 1960s Batman and you realize mm-hmm. that it wasn't just the Joker or the Riddler or the Penguin, they always had a, had a sidekick. He gets a sidekick, and so his sidekick is Nimona. She is a a supernatural shapeshifter who also feels like a complete outcast from society and is absolutely throwing herself into the position of supervillain sidekick. Mm. She is ready to kill for this guy. She's ready to kill, destroy, maim, graffito tag. She'll do whatever (laughs) she can in order to be everything that this guy needs. He refuses to let her at first because he still sees himself as a hero. Mm. And what he realizes over time is that the system itself is so corrupt that the reason why he was framed is so just appalling and makes you just so aware of the systemic injustices built into that system that keep him and Nimona out of it. That the only way to be a hero is to be, to this society, a villain. To do villainous things. Yeah, it looks to them like you're a villain, but you're actually the hero. That's an interesting, complicated way to do that. And it works, and it's funny, Mm -hmm. and I love the characters. They're actually going through real emotional, interesting things in a way that I'm not used to seeing even in good animated movies a lot of the time. It's incredibly queer. (laughs) Uh, Nimona's whole shape-shifting thing is treated very much like an allegory for transness. Uh, the climax of the movie, and without giving anything away, you feel like it's just going to be a traditional kind of action thing. Hmm. It turns out to be a metaphor for something a lot more emotionally severe. And honestly, I cried. I thought it was really beautiful. Okay. Uh, so... My one sort of beef with it, and it's not really that big a deal, is the animation style isn't really my favorite. Mm. I found it like a, a it's little... like that, uh, that two and a half D, where it's CGI, yeah. but they try to make it look like hand drawing. Yeah, but not really that much. It felt to me more like um, Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, if you, if you know the movie. Uh, if you know the game, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it grew on me. Right. It's not my favorite you know, aesthetic necessarily, mm-hmm. but the story was told so well I didn't care. Right. Um, I really loved it. I appreciated the great character work. I thought the plot's, you know, a little convoluted, but I think it mostly worked out real mm-hmm. nice. And I'm getting the impression you didn't like it quite so much as I did. Uh, I hated this movie. Oh, you're wrong. I, I really, <laughs> really disliked it. Oh, you're very movie. wrong about um, that. I, I thought it was obnoxious as fuck. Oh, um, that's a shame. Uh, the... Uh, First of all, this sort of, like, fantasy sci-fi universe, I feel like, wasn't really well thought out. It wasn't really well presented. It mm-hmm. felt like a like a He-Man cartoon, like a, a mishmash <laughs> of a lot of uh, d- sci-fi fantasy elements that doesn't feel like a constructed world. Can I say one thing that I actually agree with you on that point? Because uh. this was the part where I was, I was with it. I was willing to accept it. Uh. And then about halfway through the movie, I realized that even though this is a weird fantasy world taking place either in the future or another dimension, something... Hmm. The needle drops were songs that I recognized, and okay. I was like, "That's distracting." There, there's a, an why, action. Why, why do you have real songs that I know? Yeah, there's in there? there's and an action sequence work? set to a song called "Cause I'm Awesome" by the Dolly Rods, which is a yeah. song I'm actually very fond of. Yeah. Um, there's a difference between actually being a kind of rebellious mm-hmm. and actually being kind of uh, kind of an outsider. And just adopting the aesthetics of those things. Mm-hmm. This film has no heart in its chest. Oh. It is just the superficial trappings oh, totally of, of story and emotion. Uh, Nimona is uh, 
literal pixie dream girl because she's actually a pixie uh and doesn't strike me as the type of character who actually has like a rich inner life she's like the teenager who has gotten a hand her hands on a lot of uh, cutesy catchphrases uh and they're all anachronistic because they're all kind of like modern things she she makes mugs and makes a lot of faces and golly she got on my nerves uh chloe moretz plays the character and i feel like chloe moretz who She's thirty. Like, do, do, how long? Really how long Holy does she have to shit. keep playing teenage characters? Well, you know? in animation, you can do it forever. Yeah, I suppose so. But it's it's like, can can, can she play an adult now? That'd be nice because yeah. she's an adult. She's twenty six, by the way. 20, oh, twenty six. Right. Still, you know, in her late twenties. I'm I'm know. I'm forty four. So anybody under thirty is a child <laughs> to me. But. Uh, but she's an adult, you know. Yeah, she can play an right, adult role. Right, you see that film Greta, the, the Neil Jordan film? Yeah, she was great in that movie. Yeah, like she, that she plays an adult character. Yeah, now. I like that she movie. can play adult. No, she That's absolutely it. should be allowed yeah. to play. Adult. I'm with you on that, 100. Mm. percent I think she's good in this, yeah, I but I agree, she should be allowed to grow up. Yeah, I feel like they're they're trying to wring real emotions out of things that are just very brazenly the superficial trappings of story and emotions. These characters aren't characters. They're models of characters. Oh, I could not, uh, I could not disagree more, actually. Yeah, I, I appreciate okay. that there's some queerness in it, but uh, it, I, I feel because the characters are just superficial trappings, that just becomes another part of the superficiality of this entire movie. Oh, see, I didn't see it superficial. Mm-hmm. I really didn't see superficiality here. Oh, yeah, I yeah. think there's a superficiality to certain elements of the style. I think, again, mm-hmm. the, the little things like the needle drops, that feels superficial, mostly mm-hmm. harmless, but weird, distracting regardless. Um, I think, again, I think the plot is overly convoluted in some regards mm-hmm. and becomes a bit of a distraction. I'm with you on that. Um, I actually think that they're actually... I appreciate the emotional messiness of this. I actually don't see it as superficial. I see it actually as kind of a lot of muck where people who are actually... I agree with you there. Uh, yeah, well, I think... But I found that relatable and I thought that was interesting. And people who have been fed a bill of goods about who is a bad person or who mm. is uh, uh, deserves to be shunned mm. uh, and actually coming to terms with that and not in a very simple... Um. Uh, you know, oh, they saved my life. Now they're good. Mm. Like, oh, they saved my life. I still have decades of baggage mm. to deal with, and I still have to learn how to communicate with someone who I was told I should hate in a respectful way that mm. actually shows that I uh, care about them and consider them a person. Uh, and I think uh, there's a lot of the film is about uh, Ballister uh, learning to appreciate that Nimona is different and her difference isn't hmm. doesn't make them bad. No, I, and I, obviously that sounds kind of superficial, but I think there's an actual complexity in the way that the characters uh, interact and the way that they appreciate uh, uh, language and experience. Um, hmm. I really like uh, the way that uh, Ballister's boyfriend Hmm. is actually in a really weird, shitty position. I really like this is one scene where... He, he's the royal guard, and he has to yeah. pretend like he's hunting uh, yeah. hunting the main character. There's but... a great bit in the middle where he's talking to uh, the person in charge of the royal guard, and she's just like, are you okay? It's a glowy face, McGee. 
Uh, what is his name? Hold on. Let me see if I can figure it out. What, what's his face? He's got some like, kind of like cartoons. Ambrosius Golden Loin. <laughs> see what I mean? Like, Golden no, Face McGee is actually almost more dignified. No. But she asked him like, like, w- w- are, are you okay? Are you, are, you, are, you, are you keeping it together? And he has like a little panic attack where he talks about all the incredibly conflicting emotions about everything that he's going through. Mm. And he's completely unloading. And then they just do that thing where they cut to just a second earlier him in the car looking out the window. I'm fine. Mm. Like I actually like like that there are villain characters who or characters representing antagonism. Mm. There's some superficial ones too. There's like a dorky sports pro knight who's pretty funny. But I, I, I like the dorky sports. Yeah, he's, one. I like the he's funny. supporting yeah. character. Yeah, but like I like that there is a character representing well, ignorance and uh, uh, the status quo, who is mm-hmm. actually emotionally complicated and wants to take shortcuts in order to make his life easier, even though it hurts others. I think there's actually something mm-hmm. more complicated here than maybe you're giving credit for. I think so. Mm-hmm. I I appreciate it. There's an ending in this movie, which is um, about something very, very dark that is very, very real for a lot of people and queer people in particular. Mm. Uh, and the way that the movie is not about action conflict at the end, but is almost more uh, in, an intervention yeah, that is re- redemption. It, not, no, not redemption intervention. Mm. Mm. And I think that is very striking. And I think it really hit me in the gut. And so I'm, I'm, I, I get I'm, that you, I'm startled. <laughs> I get that I get that it didn't work for you. Yeah, I, I, get, like, I guess the, the the trappings kind of it, it would, skewed you. But I don't know. I saw, I saw some real some real heart here. It, it would be easier for me to accept something like that if the characters were presented as like characters with emotional stories and arcs and inner lives, you didn't, rather than just a bundle of quirks and catchphrases. I disagree with uh, that. I think that the, n- I think n- that having, Nimona is has is nothing. She's not really a character. I she, she's a, a think that's a, a gross over something. A, a bunch of punchlines just sort of bundled up together in this I think something that was designed for a hot topic t-shirt th- rather than something that was designed for a movie here's what I see when I look at what you just saw uh-huh. in Nimona and you know maybe I'm wrong hmm. but what I see is a character who is incredibly lonely and incredibly unsure of themselves and doesn't think that they connect with another person who has to use those trappings in order to form any kind of communication with somebody that isn't about their otherness. That's what I got out of that. Now, maybe mm. I'm looking too much into it. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, but I, I dug it. I thought that was actually kind of poignant. I feel like late in the film, they introduced this new element about Nimona, the character mm-hmm. that, uh, had nothing to do with who we knew her as up to that point. Uh, it, it it wasn't part of her character. It was a plot point. Uh, it was it was really uh, sandwiched in very quickly, and as such, it had no impact whatsoever. I happen to disagree uh, with that, but <laughs> so, fair enough. I'm I'm surprised that you. I'm not surprised that you didn't like it as much as I did, because fair enough. I'm a little surprised that you really rejected it that much. Oh yeah, yeah. Huh. It's it's it 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 bummer. It it's doesn't have heart. It it feels really soulless to me. It feels like mm. it's trying to be cool uh, and hip rather than actually meaningful. I'm gonna ask um mm. um I'm gonna ask our audience on this one because we 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 really differ on this. Yeah, I'm just kind of curious when you saw Nimona, assuming you did, mm. or if you want to watch it after this, that'll be interesting with all of this already in your head. Um, let us know what you thought of Nimona. 
Mm. I'm kind of curious if you have a, get a, you have a different take. Farley letters. That's ah, okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. That's fine too. Yeah. Like it's perfectly valid. Did you see something different than we did? Do you think I'm looking too much into it and maybe skewed by my own emotional connection to what I perceive in the material as allegorical? Or do you think, as Whitney does, that the film's attempt to be, uh, you know, entertaining on a superficial level uh, diminishes its ability to have depth? I can see that. I disagree with it, but I can see that. I'd be mm. very curious to see what some of our listeners uh, uh, think of the film. And maybe they have a different takeaway altogether. That would be cool, too. Um, in any case, I recommend it. Clearly, Whitney doesn't. Uh, and lastly, here's a film that is allegedly one of the more acclaimed films of the year. Mm. I don't know what the fuck Whitney's going to say now. Uh, I didn't see it yet. I know uh, I need to. Uh, Whitney, and, tell and me about came, Past Lives. It, it came out a, uh, about a month ago, but it's opening wide, so this yeah. is why we're reviewing it More now. people um, have access to it now yeah. than did before, so it's still relevant. Uh, I, I, I've, I've taken dumps all over every movie this week, so... Um... <laughs> Can I heap praise on a movie for once? Yes, because I actually really, really liked uh, past. And you know what? I didn't see it. I'll say terrible things anyway. (laughs) Past lives. (laughs) What about now lives? You ever think about that? No, I'm kidding. Of course, you. I'm um, not going to do that. (laughs) uh, This is a film written and directed by a filmmaker named Celine Song, uh, and it's. Structurally, think of it as like maybe the before trilogy, Richard Linklater's before trilogy okay. in one movie. Huh, okay. uh, because the, the first part of this movie, the two main characters, uh, uh, they're living in South Korea in um, like the 1980s. Uh, their names are um, uh, Haesung and um, uh, Nora. She's, going, she's changing her name to Nora okay. because her family is about to move to Canada. Okay. Uh, and they're 12. And they're fond of each other, these 12-year-olds. They play. They have a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. She's leaving, and that makes sort of their relationship a little bit more intense when they're 12 years old. In that way, you know, uh, like a temporary friendship or a temporary relationship becomes that much, that much more important to you when you're a mm-hmm. kid. Uh she is pretty, uh, like, as a 12-year-old, she's pretty sensitive. She cries a lot. Uh, he makes fun of her, calls her a crybaby, but in a, a sort of a playful way. Okay. Uh, they like each other a lot. And she she leaves, and he's very unhappy. They're both kind of unhappy about that. Fast forward 12 years. Okay. She, they're, now they're 24 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks to social media, they're able to reconnect. Now, she has moved to America... Uh, in the in- intervening 12 years, she's moved to New York. She's gone to school. She's starting up a career as a professional writer. She's really trying to make things work professionally in the United States. Uh, he, meanwhile, has been studying back in Korea and is trying to... Uh, he's gone through his compulsory military service. Right. Uh, he's uh, going to school. He's trying to make life for himself in Korea. But they're still thinking about each other. And they start having conversations uh, via Skype. They have these uh, video phone calls. They never say that they're falling in love again, but that's definitely what's happening. And and it becomes very much about this kind of push and pull uh, for Nora. Uh, let me look up the actress's name because both of the actors are excellent in this play. Um, Greta, Greta Lee plays okay. Nora, and uh, Teo Yu plays Hyson. Uh, 
Okay. And uh, uh, Sung is very, like, sort of guarded about his emotions, but you can tell, like, through his pauses and through the way he looks at her that he clearly has a deep affection for her. She's a little bit more open about how she feels and, you know, kind of calling him out on his BS. Uh, and she's trying to make things work in the United States. He's trying to make things work in Korea. And her reconnecting with her childhood culture becomes a big uh, sticking point for her. Mm. She's not really sure if if she were to go back to Korea, that would mean kind of turning her back on the life that she spent the last 12 years building. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. And then there's a third portion which takes place in another 12 years, and she's mm-hmm. married. And what happens when they try to reconnect again when they're 36? Yeah, she's married to a different person. Yeah. Just sort of thing. Okay. Not, not married to yeah. Hai Sung. She's married so, to uh, an, Amer- an American like, man. I mean, it's obviously got a different theme. Mm-hmm. Structurally, it sounds a bit more like Moonlight. Uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit. But yeah. yeah, we're kind of like... Ca- just catching up, catching up with, with these characters. So yeah, years, yeah. In tw- these 12-year interval- intervals. Yeah. Uh, this is a movie about... Uh, immigrating this mm-hmm. is a movie about diaspora this is a movie about like the korean immigrant diaspora uh, this is a movie about culture shock this is a movie about the nature of love and what it is to fall in love what it is to get married and feel like you are a when you when you've married and you've kind of settled down and what that means to the relationships you've had in the past uh the characters talk openly and brazenly about how they're feeling all the fucking time and i love it it's just about it's really con- refreshing isn't it conversing like how the drama comes from how people feel and how open they are about how they feel so many movies they're not frustrated about they're frustrated by this yeah. scenario but they're they're not having any troubles expressing themselves so many so many movies uh try to create tension by having characters refuse to talk about their feelings. And some people do. And some people or, don't or even they, know what they're feeling. Or they don't feeling. know how to feel, yeah. how to express their feelings. And you know what? That's also real. That's mm-hmm. also true. Some people are like that. And some people are like that sometimes more than others. Uh, but when every movie seems to have that same approach, it's really refreshing yeah, just to hear people talk, isn't it? And, and when the characters are 12 and they don't know how to say their feelings, fine, they're yeah, 12. Of course they're 12. <laughs> exactly. They don't know how, how to, they don't have the vocabulary yet to sort of figure mm. out what those feelings are. When they're 24, they have those kinds of 24 feelings. Mm. Um, She's trying to be an artist, and there's a wonderful scene where she checks into, like, an artist's enclave in upstate New York and, like, shares this hostile cabin out, in the, like, by mm. a lake with these other artists. That's a really really wonderful scenes that you would recognize if you've ever been to, like, art school or, mm. or you know, went to, to that kind of a college. Sure. Um, so, you know, you get that kind of... Um, it, it's not bohemian, but that kind of, like, college kid lifestyle, which is really wonderful. But yeah, as as the film progresses, as they age, their emotional vocabulary changes. The things they that concern them change, and the way they communicate changes. Mm. And uh, you start to realize, and I'm not sure if you've ever had a really like a, a long term relationship with somebody you knew when you were a kid. Um, yeah, and uh, how a lot of or thought back on somebody you had a big crush on when you were in junior high school. Sure. You still remember them, don't you? Yeah, of course. Because it's really, it's really well, intense. Well, when those, you're young. yeah, when you when you've never exercised mm. those emotions before, they come in really unfiltered, and you feel them really more powerfully. Mm. That's why a lot of people they, say they like, feel hey, stronger. Yeah. Like, There's no one like your first love. Yeah, because you've never loved before. Mm. You don't know how to keep a cap on that. You don't know how to do it, a, you know, responsibly or with measurement. Uh, I, you I just always uh, feel. 
Mm-hmm. I always hold close to me a, a speech that uh, Guinan and Wesley Crusher had in an episode <laughs> of Star Trek. Here yes. we go. I finally brought up Star Trek. I, um, I, I want I want like the director of this movie to hear this podcast and go, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking about that episode with Guinan and Wesley. This guy gets it. <laughs> But tell the story. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to Celine Song at some point. If I ever get to talk to her, she'll, yes, I'm a big Trekkie. Every once in no, a while, it's... you have like those weird theories. It's like, oh, you were thinking about this, weren't you? Every once in a while, you're right. Like right, I, once I, in a while. I interviewed like the director of uh, Gretel and Hansel, and mm-hmm. I was like, hey, you know that scene where there's uh, like the, where Gretel eats a mushroom and it makes her hallucinate? You made that look like the mushroom of Super Mario Brothers on purpose. And he's like, yes, that's what mushrooms look like. <laughs> All mushrooms are Super Mario mushrooms. It's like red with white spots. Yeah, just very specifically a Super Mario mushroom. And I don't think anyone else would have been like, oh, that's probably not worth talking about. He's like, no, 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 someone finally got it. Yes, the Super Mario mushroom. (laughs) People are dorks. They think about these things. But in that Star Trek episode, uh, Wesley, who's a teenage character, uh, mm. falls in love with a traveling dignitary, and it's like his first intense love. And he become he feels a little betrayed because she was lying about her species. It turns out she's a shapeshifter, and also she has an important job to do, and yeah. has to go marry for diplomatic reasons. Yeah, and, like their their love is uh, more doomed than he thought. Yeah, he thought yeah. they only had a little time together. It turns out they don't even have that. No, no. Mm. Uh, but but she was also a, you know very fond of him and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was Will Wheaton's first kiss. Like it was on. I'd heard that. This yeah. Other actress. And, yeah. And she was like, like eight years older than he was. So it was all very awkward for him. Um, but at the very end, he's like feeling very sorry for himself. He's just wallowing in self pity and 10 forward and Guinan, Whoopi Goldberg comes over and kind of leans up, wants to talk with him about his feelings. And he's like, I, I'm never going to love anybody like her ever again. It's just, and she says, you're right. You're never gonna love it, and and he actually looks at her. He's like, I didn't think you'd say you're that. You're supposed to say, no, it'll be okay. No, you'll you'll be find okay, that you'll love find, again. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, that's, what, that's she, what you expect. She lays it out pretty plenty, like pretty pretty plainly. Is like, no, this you're gonna have other loves. You're mm-hmm. gonna fall in love again, and each one's gonna be a little different. Every person you love is gonna hit you a different way, and this is gonna be the one you'll always remember because this was the first, and that's really important to you. You're just gonna have to get used to that. And uh, I, I, I like that. I like Guinan's advice. When you're a teenager watching Star Trek, that kind of hits you hard. Uh, I feel like past lives is dealing with that intensity of first love and how that actually can translate itself into adult passion if you mm. continue to sort of stay in contact. But it has the added wrinkle of what that means when you're married to somebody else, what that means when uh, you're trying to uh, forge your own path and the person represents an old world of yours. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not an immigrant, so I can't relate to this part of the story, but this is, it's an important part of her, like her culture. Yeah. The, the Nora character, she's uh, really, that's something you yourself has experienced. Yeah. But she's clearly trying to, suss out uh like her, her cultural identity in all of this as well is she an american is she korean uh being with this man sort of has her embracing her koreanness uh there's a r- really wonderful scene late in the movie where she's talking to her husband and she's describing uh her, her you know her korean boyfriend mm-hmm. and she uses the word korean over and over again oh the what he said was a very korean thing to say and he's a very korean mm-hmm. guy and everything about him is really korean and her um, american husband doesn't understand any of that like he's kind of rolling his eyes in the back he's like mm-hmm. what are you talking about so this is all something that's like very important and insular to her she understands what all that means uh korean immigrants understand what she's talking about when she's talking about how korean he is um, 
So, yeah, it's all very much about our cultural identity. This is a very thoughtful film. It's very quiet. It's very talky. And I love movies where people just walk around and talk uh, <laughs> about their day, about their feelings. And everybody's really open and communicative and emotionally intelligent. Uh, it It's, yeah, it's just... And leaves you just feeling really warm about everything at the very end, even though there's some painful moments and some uh, hard decisions that have to be made by the end. Um, I, I just loved it. I loved it. It's it's being praised as one of the best films of the year. It's maybe too gentle to really sell as this kind of bomb that you're going to go in and see, but mm. it, it's going to be a little bit... It's going to sneak up on you. It's going to mm. have that, that little... Uh, that, that impact is going to hit real real hard once it finally kind of warms you it's like it's like you take a shot of some really like high quality liquor mm -hmm. and you don't feel it for a minute and then there's that warmth in your midsection yeah it makes it just feel very cozy yeah yeah Yeah. well i look forward to catching up on it Mm -hmm. it really does sound good um all right well that that, yeah so i I didn't like the other movies but i really like (laughs) past lives and i think everyone should go see past lives i'm really glad okay well uh, let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale this is what we do at the end of our podcast we take movies that we've discussed in great depth and we make it clear what we thought in yeah. a very simple truncated way because our listeners requested it uh but we do it a little differently we review our movies on a scale of c minus to c plus so that the highest rating you can get from us is a c plus that is above average that's as good as you need uh average is a c might be good and bad mm-hmm. mixed bag but more for one audience than another and then below average that's a c minus just guaranteeing we will never be quoted on a movie poster. <laughs> Critically acclaimed gives it a C plus. Everyone's like, oh shit, they put that on the poster? I don't know. I don't know if I should see that movie. That didn't look good. Um, it's, yeah. it's like it's like when you uh, pass like one of those uh, re- like a restaurant and it has like you know the the health oh, organization right. like has given it a B. Mm. And some people look at that and go, ugh, a B. And I look at it and go, it's above average. Yeah. Look, I've, I've worked in food services before. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't operate a kitchen or have food in the city uh, without having vermin. That's just a, a fact of life when run, running in food service. You need uh, to hire exterminators. You need to keep keep the, the vermin away. But you're going to get them. Yeah. A, a field roach is going to come in from outside. It's not, yeah. not the kind that eats your food, but it's going to be a big, scary bug. And Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen, yeah. Um, so uh, the joke we made is if it, it has an A in the, the restaurant window, the roaches are only like less than an inch long. <laughs> So B, they're a little bigger, and a C, yeah. you got the big, the big mothers. Yeah. Uh, in in reality, though, if you see a B, go try to find an A. But uh, in I'm, any I've case, I've eaten at C restaurants. I don't I, care. I've, I <laughs> I've have, never, I I've never gotten it. sick. I did one on purpose, and I was like, I regret this very much. Anyway, uh, but we, we our scale sick. is different. A C plus is the equivalent of an A. A C is well, it's a C actually, and a C minus is the equivalent of an F. That's all you get. Mm. Uh, on that note, past lives, Whitney, go. Uh, Past Lives, C+. Plus. Yeah, really, really wonderful film. I'm going to be mm. thinking about it a lot. I think uh, I, I like mm. these characters. I like the performances. Uh, great cinematography. It's from the same cin- cinematographer who did the Small Axe movies. Oh, wow. So cool. yeah, it has okay. that kind of like dreamy uh, texture. Awesome. All right. Uh, I, I shudder to ask, but mm. Nimona. Nimona C-. Minus. I was totally annoyed by this movie. I think it's it's <laughs> shallow and obnoxious and not well put together. Right, well, I was totally enchanted by this movie. I thought it was not shallow and not obnoxious and very entertaining. Uh, I actually appreciated uh, that there was some real depth to the character while also being uh, entertaining in a straightforward way. Uh, I loved it to pieces and giving it a C+. It's one of my favorite movies I've seen so far this year. You're gonna have it. It's fine. I'm ha- I will, damn it. <laughs> Alright, uh, I'm 
I suspect I know where this one's going, but mm. Mad Heidi. Mad Heidi. Uh, it is a C minus. Um, mm. It's it coasting on its concept. It could have worked. That's not you know yeah, make, well, making a, for anything. Making mm. a silly movie is is not inherently a bad idea. But uh, yeah, I, I think it just wasn't quite funny enough. Wasn't quite crazy enough. And then Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Also C minus. Yeah. Uh, big useless waste of money. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't need to go back. This is this but is what a, did you really think? A, about a well, it? we could have left behind. Uh, yeah, Indiana Jones. I say I give it a C minus as well. Um, God knows I've seen worse movies, but it just the pieces were there, but they just refused to connect very well. Yeah. Uh, it approaches interesting themes, then it hides from them. It introduces new characters, but then it chooses yeah, to foreground less interesting characters. Yeah, the action was, ideas uh, are kind of cool, but then they just aren't filmed or edited very well. Yeah, the, the, there yeah. was just one really great... I, I can't really say what it is without revealing a lot about the ending of the movie, mm-hmm. but there was one really tantalizing theme about archaeology that I yeah. feel like the film could have focused entirely on and, yeah. and like sort of really dwelled upon and interrogated and interrogated who Indiana Jones was as a character. Yeah. It's, it's like there's a seed in there of something really, really interesting that the film didn't bother following. They just refuse yeah. to actually make it connect in a meaningful way. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, but I will say this. I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is great. And if they ever wanted to do a spinoff with her, I'd, Buy a ticket. I, I think she's great. I think she's cool. I love her character. I would I love to see Mutt that adventure. I as well from the last movie. Mutt was, was fine. Uh, you know, I got issues with Shia LaBeouf, but there's nothing wrong with the character per se. Mm-hmm. I think Short Round could carry his own movie too. Why the fuck not? You could do a... Fuck it. The Adventures of... What was Marion Ravenwood doing after Raiders but before Crystal Skull? I'd see a whole series. I'm sure she was up to cool shit too. Why not? Or, or what was she doing like prior to opening that that bar in Nepal or wherever yeah, it was. Uh, she clearly was doing cool uh, shit. Ra- Ra- I would love to see her adventures. Ra- have like uh, the young Ra- Marion Ra- Ravenwood the, adventures. The Ravenwood Chronicles. There I'm down. <laughs> I want to see that shit. Why not? Like, seriously, there's so much to explore here. And I feel like making it exclusively about Harrison Ford as if this is impossible to create without one actor is selling your creation short. Yeah. And, Frankly, I think it's actually almost rude to Harrison Ford to say that the character he created cannot exist without him and have no other legacy. Um, I actually find that kind of sad that you would create a part, a part that, you know, parts are designed to be played by actors. Let another actor play it. I don't know. Maybe that's me. (laughs) Anyway, uh, coming up next on Critically Acclaimed, what the hell comes out this week? We got another Mission Impossible. Oh, that's Uh, next week. Oh, you're right. This Uh, week it's the new Insidious. There's a new Insidious. Uh, There's a cool documentary about YouTube coming out next week. Oh, I've actually seen that already. Okay, cool. That's that's coming out next week. It's Alex Winter made it. Um, uh, What else is there? There's a couple others. Other things as well, but we'll review them. Damn it. Yes. Uh, and of course, we have other things here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Our uh, series, Thank Godzilla, It's Friday, continues apace. Come on by every Friday as Whitney and I review a different film in the Godzilla series in order. Uh, we uh, we just released uh, on the main feed uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla. Uh, and uh, we're about to release a really interesting super submarine movie review that most people mm-hmm. haven't seen and it's really cool. Um <laughs> But yeah, that's really... Thank you, everyone, who joining us for that. You can get episodes in advance over at our Patreon. You can also listen to that podcast, this podcast, all of our podcasts ad-free 
on Patreon. You can also get a whole bunch of uh, exclusive shows. We just released an episode of Only the Best, where Whitney and I review every single movie ever nominated for Best Picture. We just did the Best Picture nominees of 1952, which is actually one of the most notorious years in Oscar history, because the winner was a film that people don't like very much, and the film that didn't win is considered an all-time classic. Uh... It's weird, and we actually came to some unexpected conclusions about that. I think you might mm-hmm. have fun listening to it. Um, and we do a bunch of other stuff as well. Thank you to all of our patrons. Without you, our show could not exist. And if you want to join up, it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, I myself am on Twitter and Blue Sky. That's right. At William Bibiani. Whitney? Mm. Uh, I too am on Twitter and Twitter is falling apart. Twitter's so, a mess right now. So we, we were yeah. uh, we tried Hive, but Hive wasn't working out for us. I've had so. security issues, which is unfortunate because yeah, I, I quite liked Hive. I like Hive a lot too. I um, quite like Blue Sky actually. I'm yeah, enjoying but, it very much. And uh, yeah, I, I just got on Blue Sky uh, as of, as of today, this recording. Yeah. Uh, I we and uh, honestly, it's one of our listeners who hooked this up mm. uh, with invites. I just want to give. I, I don't know if they want to be named. Uh, if you mm. are okay with it, let us know, and we'll give you a shout out on another episode. But mm. seriously, thank you. That was very very cool of you. Uh, and yeah, I'm making a concerted effort to tweet a lot less and try to blue sky a lot more. Yeah. Uh, so um, I really hope they don't like blue sky. Like I, I heard somebody try to make a portmanteau of tweet and sky. It's skeet, and they came up with skeet. Yeah, which people are trying to make skeet like, happening. That's not a good word. It's, it's a, it means something else. It's, it's a slang it's actually, term. It's, actually, it's, it's a naughty word. It's, it's an urban dictionary. It's, it's just a naughty word. Why, why would you? Why of all the things? Anyway, they 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 made their choices. <laughs> skeet skeet, goddamn! Like it's in song lyrics and stuff. Anyway, uh, but we're over there, and uh, we're also uh, we don't have we don't have an extra account because they're still you know being judicious with their invites. Good, but uh, our our uh, podcast our podcast has a Twitter account. It's mm-hmm. at critic acclaim. Yeah, uh, and of course, if you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, we invited you to share your thoughts on Demona. We'd be very curious about your thoughts on Dial of Destiny or anything else we discussed this week. Uh, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail, answer your questions, respond to your criticism. Sometimes we're wrong, and we will freely admit it if you if you point it out. So we'd love mm-hmm. to hear from you. Uh, and also, we have a P.O. box if you prefer to send us mail the old-fashioned way. Yeah, it's it's uh, much more likely that you're going to get read on the air if you do. That's, That's important right. to you. Uh, Whitney, what is our yeah, P.O. box? Send us an actual physical letter to uh, the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's it for us. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Enjoy your week. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>